110% rolling right now. It's fucking, I was rolling the fucking, I just looked to double check levels and the fucking thing cut out, I believe for about 7 to 8 minutes and I'm hoping that's, re- that's retrievable. But I'm going to start this real quick and say once again, welcome to episode 66 of the fucking Brooklyn Blast Furnace podcast and I'm here with Brendan Rafferty. Motherfucker. <laughs> Singer for SFA and who worked at CB's for fucking a long goddamn time. And That's I'm, true. I'm really fucking aggravated <laughs> right now because for about 15 minutes we were talking about why Brendan got into fucking punk rock and what brought him there and this, that, and the other thing. So, hopefully that's retrievable, and I will fucking splice it in. And even if you're listening right now, and if it's in there, you didn't even know that it was just spliced in. So... God, right now, right now, my my my, I'm shaking on the inside because I'm so aggravated. All right, where would you like to pick up, Brandon? Brandon, because I can't even think straight right now. You want to? All right, we're gonna go to '84 is when you first got to going to CBs and to shows constantly. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, you did say that. <laughs> you can't say but that. But now that doesn't make sense with everything I said before that lost. Not necessarily <laughs> lost. Okay, so let's pick up. Let's. So let, we have to pick up the new fucking now. I'm all fucked up. You this see? podcast yes. is as fake <laughs> as a Maximum Rock and Roll interview. No, it's not. Don't say that. How dare you? Oh, that's getting edited out, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, listen. Oh, God. All right. Where do you want to pick up from? It's completely up to you. Well, I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital. Oh, yeah, with the picturesque view of the fucking park in the wintertime. In the wintertime. December 31st. We already just got over that, too, because you were a teenager for one day in the 70s, technically. Ah, uh, see, now you ruined the whole thing. It's, the whole bit's gone. I know. But, but listen, we're going to see if we can get that. And then nobody will live in, no nobody will be to be the wiser. We'll splice it up and we'll make it nice, nice. I promise. Okay, you're looking at me like you want to shoot me, like you jerk no, off. No, no, no. All right. So uh, let's, let so, me preempt then. Okay. Whatever can be recovered can be recovered. Right, and I apologize. And assuming, assuming that everything was lost, and with apologies in advance to whoever yes. is going to edit this thing now. Yeah, sorry, Tim uh, Anderson Jr. Um. You open the this uh, discussion by asking why. Why, yes. Why did you get into this? Why did you do the band? Well, the band doing the band is secondary to getting into the scene. Right. Uh, to reiterate a lot of what I was saying before, and now to Thank be you, much and less I'm, and I'm sorry, to be man. much less spontaneous about it. <laughs> I'm sure once we get past this part, then we'll be spontaneous about other right. things. Small glitch. Small glitch. What? 
what drove me, what got me into hardcore is what I think, and I'm glad that he asked that question. Why? Because it's something that I feel that a lot of people forget to talk about. You know, in all these documentaries and books, they'll talk about the music, and as we've discussed before, um, it's not about. Yes, it's the music that you know put it all together, but it's not. When you talk about hardcore, you can't just talk about it as if you're talking about, you know, let's talk about the early days of jazz or blues, right. because it's, it's this is more than music. This is this is an, a true underground counterculture subculture uh, that separated itself from the outside world, made up of you know, far right, far left, straight edge junkies, rich kids, street kids, squatters, who all didn't fit in in the outside world and created their own world. Right. And that's what was important and we defended that world from the outside. <clears throat> we, uh... It wasn't just going to shows and hanging out. It's one of the things where people say, and I'll say something I hadn't said before, People ask, and it's not just in the current documentaries out there, but people have been asking for years, is hardcore dead? Yes. I'm going to fucking say... Wow, yes. I love that you just said that. Okay, go on. Yeah. Are there bands out there still making good music? Yeah. Yeah. There sure are. Are there people with a fucking fire in their belly and a belief in their heart? Yeah. Yeah. Are there good shows happening? Yeah. And when I talk about the people, I'm even talking about new kids. Right. Kids who weren't even born yet when it all began. But it's not the same. And I don't mean it's not the same like I'm talking about some crotchety old guy. Oh, I had to walk five miles in the snow uphill both ways. Right. You know, to get to school. I mean it as in... Not sonically either. No, mean. well... There, there's been a change, but that's right. That's separate. Right, exactly. What's missing is this underground counterculture subculture that was outside of the regular world. Right. Like I had said before, um, you know, being a part of this, you know, meant you wanted to be cast out. You were being cast out. People yelled at you, spit on you on the street. Um... Because you didn't want to be a part of that world. You wanted to be a part of this world. Right. There's the nine billion stories that it I've heard was about like, the Guidos throwing bottles at the punks. And one of my like favorite lines is uh, from the Patti Smith song, Rock and Roll Nigger, where, you know, where are you gonna, if you come looking for me, where, where are you, you going to find me outside of society? Right. Um, I mean, I'm not saying the lyrics in order, and I'm not certainly going to insult anyone by trying to sing them. Um, <laughs> but... Outside of society, that struck, you know, a chord with me. Um, I like the idea of not, because I didn't fit in, because I, I never liked the people around me, the, 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 the culture and the, you know, the mainstream pop culture that was out there. And, and like I said before, not just talking about, you know, music and fashion, but like, it's just the, just the way people live. I, I didn't want to do 
the things people my age were doing. Right. I had no interest in doing the things people older than me were doing when I was going to get older. And I didn't want to, when I, I'd see kids in the movies, I, I didn't want to be a part of that either. Right. I, you know, I, I just, I, I wanted to, what they were doing. I, I wanted, I didn't fit in. And I, I told the story before. Hopefully of, of seeing a, Of seeing a punk walking down the street in Jackson Heights, like around 80, 81, and thinking, and watching the way people looked at him like he didn't belong here. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, neither do I. Good for it's that like, guy. Let, let me follow that guy. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to hang out here with my family. Let me walk away. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like um, my, my favorite album cover uh, in hardcore is the Minor Threat Out of Step album cover. Because it speaks, it, to it speaks to you. Yeah. It speaks to any hardcore kid in the 80s. When that image of, you know, the herd of white sheep and the one black sheep going the other direction. Right. Um, that's it, right there in a nutshell. Um, so, yeah, hardcore is dead because that doesn't exist anymore. The neighborhood goons that used to make fun of us, the jocks... The, the the popular kids, they're all into hardcore shows now, yeah. or what they call hardcore shows now, and to them it is just music, and we even saw that a lot of that, and you know, in the mid and late eighties, you started seeing people coming to shows who were just they're there for the music, that's all it was. It was just you know, you know, I like that awesome fucking riff. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't more than that to them, right, and. You got. It's hard to imagine for a kid who wasn't around then what it was like. Um, and I, I don't just. I'm not talking about tough streets or any of that shit. I just mean how truly underground, how truly counterculture it was. Right. And when you were in a band in the 80s, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about the music. You didn't have rock star ambitions. No. If you had rock star ambitions, you 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 know you put on a pair of spandex and you know played some fucking hair metal. There you go. Um, you didn't you know shave your head and play punk. Right. <coughs> yeah, it's yeah. A lot of kids nowadays won't don't have any concept, and and I'm not even speaking because I wasn't there at a seven or in the earth. I mean, like. Mid mid eighties, mid late eighties, when I first started going to shows, when I was like fourteen, fifteen. So, you know what I mean? Like, I was fucking. You know, there there is no there's no technology then. There was no fucking phones. There was no nothing. So you had to like. Uh oh, this thing's brewing. Go ahead. What are you gonna no, say? No, no, no. I mean, it wasn't just that. It was. But I'm saying you needed to also, you needed to drive. There was a thing that brought you there. There was something, it wasn't, oh, because it's cool and it's trendy and it's a thing. It's like all of those people I, were I there for a legit, I'm going to say like a real, uh, like a real reason. Like there was no bullshit behind them being there. They, no one was trying, they were trying to find their little tribe. No? And it wasn't like, oh, well. It's like almost like the cool thing, and like all the like like you said, like all the jocks and all. No, those there like, was nothing cool about. It. Yeah, of exactly. Course. It was. It you was know a- what? Like anything else, there were teenagers, so there was, there were cliques and crews, and there were, even though there weren't supposed to be, there were cool kids, right? And that caused problems that shouldn't have never been problems, 
uh, and fights that should have never happened. Um, I, I can remember jump, jumping forward years. I remember my band playing a show in 94 upstate New York in Woodstock. And uh local promoter was a nice guy. We'd worked with him before. And uh, I remember looking at the crowd. It was a high school age crowd. And, you know, some kids listening to this now are thinking, oh, 94, those are old school. No, no. Uh, but <laughs> it's, it's not even about that. It was... It was like the local high school had turned out for this show. There were a big crowd there, but it looked like I was watching a goddamn John Hughes movie, like Sixteen Candles or something, with the different with the different lunch tables, with the cool kids and the cheerleaders and the jocks, and I just looked at the these the crowd and 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 the and the different you know breakup of it. I was just like. Who are these fucking people and what are they doing here? Right. This is not their thing. But this is also 94 uh-huh. when Offspring and Green Day. Oh, God, yeah. Who I'm not got nothing personally against those guys, but they opened the door and. Uh, All the Nirvana kids. It's something that should have died a. A death of dignity, like some big fucking show in the late 80s where the club burns down and we all die. Uh-huh. That's how it should have ended. Uh-huh. Not with a bunch of people still trying to, you know, flogging a dead horse. Um, it's like doing really, really good acid and having a really good trip. And the last couple of hours when you're coming down and you're, you're trying to force it to still happen... You're trying to make the trip continue, but it's not. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fucking... Uh, yeah. you know, there are great bands out there. There are some great shows, but... What an analogy that was. <laughs> yeah, but if, if, if you've done it, you know what I mean. All right, that's why I was right there with you. <laughs> I was right there. But there's... Uh, Maybe somewhere it's happening. But as an underground subculture, counterculture, no. And yeah, I'll hear some fucking kids screaming, No, no, you don't get it, Brendan, it really... No, no. You're... You're... <laughs> you're, you're, you're totally not getting it. This is... You're... you're, you're you're fucking doing live action role play. You're fucking reenactors. You're not the real deal. This isn't. This isn't it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Are we done? No, we're not <laughs> fucking done. No, no, we're not done. God, that was such a fucking. God, dude, that fucked us up there for a minute. But yo, but like, listen, like, I know, like, like I said, hopefully it's there. It might be gone. I think it's still there, but. We'll find out later. Yeah, you're 42. What do you know? Yeah, I don't know shit. <laughs> I don't know shit. You invite me to your house. I sit here. We bullshit. Something fucks up. But you know what? We, it goes on. We're, 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 we're going to press on. But like like I said before, like I know you from, obviously not personally. I've seen you, I don't know how many times, at CB's, working at CB's. And I know you from being the singer for SFA. And I also know that you were in the military. Yeah. Um, which I didn't realize that until we became friends on Facebook friends. You know, I didn't realize that. Not, more, not all my photo albums are public, yeah. 
Right, well, the ones that I saw, and um, I thought that was awesome. I I, I didn't sir. I, I was in the I was in the service, but I was in I guess at a very fortunate time because we, there was no wars going on. I went right. in, I went in the '96 and got thrown out. What branch of service? Air Force. I was a pretty boy. So man. you were almost a military. I was, yeah, I, and I and I don't give a fuck about that. I'm like, you know what? I'll, well, that's the way I look at it. It's like the Marine recruiter wouldn't take me because I I scored too high on the ASVAB test. I went to the Marine recruiter and I was and all I, fucked up. I scored up. too high. I could, they wouldn't take me. Right. I, the Navy, well, they asked me if I like girls. I said yes. They wouldn't take me. Right. Oh shit. Uh, the Air Force was out because I wanted to join the military, so I had right. the army. There you go. <laughs> what do you think about the Coast Guard? They just like the. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, fuck it, I'll join the Air Force. I don't give a fuck. Three three meals. Hey, I, I don't s- knock it. Yeah, listen. So I got thrown out anyway. Uncle Sam didn't want any part of Jimmy Ferrari after a while. Things things happened, and I've, I've discussed all that shit at length on previous podcast episodes. But, um, but yeah, I didn't know that. And then I was kind of like trying to put the timeline in my head, like, okay, well, you're in the band, and you're at Seabees, and then you, you served in the Gulf. That's no. Well, that was well, a peacekeeping force. Yeah, but no, what no. time frame? Uh, those pictures were 86 and 87. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I thought that was later on, you see. I don't know. See, I'm not smart enough. Most people, didn't see, uh, most people didn't see desert camouflage uniforms until then. Right. Right. No, so no, I, I, was, I thought that was around like Desert Storm 1 time frame. No. Okay. I was... Um, that's a separate story. Okay. Which I really don't want to get into about being, going for the recall for that in 91, or 90 rather. But, um, that's a whole separate thing. Okay. We could talk off the record later about that. That's no problem. (laughs) Whatever uh, you want to do, whatever you want to say, that's fine. You know, it's funny, you mentioned, we were joking about the recruiter, but the truth is, and it's a funny story, you know, being a New York City kid, I didn't really know much about the different specialties in the military and the different branches of service, except what I'd seen in movies and pop culture. Same here. So, uh, being a dummy, the first recruiter I walked into was a Marine recruiter. And I knew a couple of things, and I walked in, and I was like, uh, yeah, let me, uh, I'm interested, you know, I want to, I was, you know, gung-ho, to use the term. Right. I was all about it and wanted, you know, being a tip-of-the-spear kind of thing and sense of adventure and you know, write a passage, all that shit. And uh, I said, you know, I want to be an Anglico or Force Recon or one of these. And they're like, the Marine recruiter tried to hard sell me, which was apparently the way things were back then yeah. for Marines, which was, oh, no, no. You just sign. We'll tell you what you get. Uh. And I said, hold on. So, I'm telling you, I want to be in a tip-of-the-spear type unit in the infantry or beyond, and you're telling me I can't get that in a contract. And he said, no, 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 you go through boot camp, you do your time, you prove yourself a man, and blah, 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 Uh, and you'll make it to that. Now, not being retarded, I thought to myself, hold on. Exactly. If my graduating class from boot camp happens to, I could be the most gung-ho guy, you know, fucking run every course, uh, you know, score on the top of my graduating class, best shot, fastest, strongest, etc., etc., smartest. 
But if the Marine Corps has a need for supply clerks, that's where I'm fucking going. Right. <laughs> right. If it's not going to be in this contract. You'll be working in the fucking kitchen. Right. So the uh, the promise of, oh, be a man and join, we'll, we'll let you know. No. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, could, I could go for a tip the spear unit down the hall. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, the funny thing is, and here's an interesting thing about the military and punk rock in the 80s, which I think is really fascinating. Um, as I discovered, a, a lot of people, now some people when they tell you they're joining, they talk shit. Oh, I'm going special forces, I'm going to go Navy SEAL, and all this. Eh, nine times out of ten, they're lying. Exactly. Right. Um, but the funny thing is, all the punks and skins that I knew who joined the military... They didn't join to be supply clerks. No. Uh, like, a classic example, um, when I was in the 101st Airborne Division, um, I was... I was in a... a I was started... My, my, my first part of my enlistment, I was in a light infantry unit, and uh, in my company, there was one other punk, a kid from Los Angeles, great guy. Okay. Um, from the early days of L.A. He had some great stories and whatnot. And uh, then I got lucky and I managed to get it into the Long Range Surveillance Attachment, which was an elite unit within the division. It was a division reconnaissance. And a uh, small company, only six six-man teams, 36 guys altogether, okay. plus some support, combo guys and whatnot. But the... And it was an all-volunteer unit, higher standards. We were doing really crazy shit, and we got to go to all the cool schools and do all the sh stuff. And, you know, it was play with the toys that <laughs> no one could talk about. That yeah. kind of shit at yeah. the time. Um, <laughs> and there were a couple punks in that unit, as small as it was with only 36. And a lot of the guys who I was friends with who were like, yeah. Over, you know, down there, we were training with other special operations units, and they're like, the guys down the road of the special forces group, a couple of punks there. Yeah. Um, guys outside Savannah, Georgia from 1st Ranger Battalion, a bunch of punks there. And, huh. I was at a show uh, outside Clarksville, and uh, there were a bunch of bands playing. Where's Clarksville? Clarksville, Tennessee. Okay. Which, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky is right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. In fact, okay. it's called Fort Campbell, Kentucky, even though most of the physical base is in Tennessee. It's right on the border. Okay. In fact, Clarksville is like five minutes from the Kentucky border. Okay. So at the show in Clarksville, and immediately, you know, hanging out in the parking lot, uh, you could spot all the other guys that are military. You know, the demeanor, the, the haircuts, the... The dog tag chains visible, sticking, you know. Uh-huh. And so there are probably about 18 of us in a circle, you know, hanging out, bullshitting, talking in the parking lot, talking about getting together. Like, Jesus Christ. You know, just because back then, here, here's something to understand, and this is the truth um, of one of the differences. Because it was such an underground subculture in the 80s, like... <laughs> I remember walk, walking, you'd be walking down the street in the city, uh -huh. and you're there, you got your fucking combat boots you bought on Orchard Street, 
your head's buzzed, you got a flannel tied around your waist, you're wearing some fucked up t-shirt, excuse me, uh-huh. and you're walking down the street and walking the other way across the street on the sidewalk is some other kid. Yeah. You never saw him. Right. But he's also, he's a fucking hardcore kid. Who yeah. knows where he's from? Uh, maybe he just moved to New York. And holy shit, you two catch each other's eyes. You fucking stop dead in your tracks. Hey, man, where you from? Yeah. You're your best friends and you're hanging out talking. You're standing in the middle of the street for six hours talking and catching up. Right. Um, because there was this such as, you know, this thing. There's a bond there. It's like, you're one of me and that's it. It's like- so getting back to this story. In this parking lot in Clarksville outside the show where some bands played. Government Cheese was one of the bands. Um, and uh, we're, we're all we're all hanging out, just the 15 of us, and we're just talking for hours because it's like, oh, it was like, oh, my God, there are more of you on base. Yeah. We should all hang out. And the great thing was going around the circle. Now, you were in the military, so you know. And like, even in the Army. The majority of the people in the service are in support units. You know, there's not everyone is an infantryman, you know, charging forward with the bayonet. Right. You got a lot of guys, a lot of supply guys, trucks, yeah, doing finance. You know, working at CIF, handing out your clothes. Yeah. You know, all this stuff. Yeah. And so we're going around the circle, and everyone's talking. You know, hey, we got to hook up. What unit are you in? And it's. I don't know how much you know Army, but some of the shit's together. You're like, a few of the guys were from 5th Special Forces Battalion. Okay. Uh, me and one other guy from the Division Reconnaissance Unit. Okay. A couple guys from Division Pathfinders. And then a couple guys from, like, the 187th or the 327th Infantry. And there was only one guy out of this group of, like, 15 punks from Fort Campbell, there was only one guy who was like, you know, whatever, I'm in the, whatever the fuck, transportation unit. Right. But he was really more of like a kind of a, a new wave poser who just like knew the dead Kennedys kind of stuff. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> the point is, the fascinating thing was how many people, and when you got to talking... With each other, it's it's a network like anything else with hardcore back then. Everyone's talking about, well, yeah, well, I knew this guy from this guy, this guy from this, these guys from that unit were, you know, the you know several instructors at Ranger School were from fucking, you know, the Texas punk rock scene, or you know, it was all the people who seemed, most of them who seemed, most of the real punk and hardcore kids from the '80s, from the early and mid '80s. Who went into the military? They went into the badass units. Yeah, they didn't go. Yeah. They didn't go into supply. Yeah, they got some shit to fucking get they off their did. chest. Yeah, and you learned from like, especially in the special operations community, you learn like you know you knew other guys in other units and stuff, and you get to talk, and especially that you're with your fellow punks, and it's like yeah, you know, what were you talking about? Yeah, you know those guys that did you know. We're on operation, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> the five of them were punks. That's you know? awesome. That's <laughs> so you get you got guys in like in like some of the real hush hush units like, really, no shit. Yeah. That's like I don't know what it is. Somebody should write a book about that. The Something. psychology of it that there were so many eighties punks that were drawn to be in 
in these fucking, you know, tip of the spear type units. Yeah. Like I remember talking to, uh, 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 talking Roger and also Frenchie were telling me about it. Whenever they go play, when they, when they tour the U.S. and you know they're up in Washington or or they're outside Savannah, Georgia, how there'd be like ninety guys from the local Ranger Battalion at the show, that kind of thing. Crazy in the eighties. Yeah, in the eighties. <laughs> it's just crazy. But it's just that was where they were drawn. But I think a lot of that goes to hardcore in general in the eighties. It was that being drawn to you know. Not fitting in and ah shit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Moving on. Moving on. Well, you did mention you know a, 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 he was just like a new wave poser that knew the dead Kennedys, but you do. Well, there was the whole thing. It's like in the fucking mid eighties, you go like a at a, the local the local show at CB's, you know, or or wherever else, and there were some amazing clubs, you know, wherever the, the nameless theater, whatever. You had like a hundred people show up. Right. Um, but then you know. Black Flag is playing Irving Plaza. Dead Kennedys are playing the Ritz right. or the World, and you got like fucking you know a thousand people there. Right. Who who are these people? I never saw them. They're all you know whatever the Long Island kids who have you know that one Dead Kennedys album in their collection. They're right. not really into. Right. They're not. They're 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 they're, they're tourists. Right. <laughs> of course. But you do have why you were in the military that I read, and I literally I was laughing out loud reading your story. But it's a, it's a it's a, a caption on one of your pictures on one of your friends uh, on one of on your personal Facebook page. But would you mind telling that dead Kennedy's story because there was a particular Kennedy that was supposed to come, and you you know what story I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't mind re- repeating the story. <laughs> Do you mind? I don't mind because a lot of people I'm sure have no clue about it. All right. It's fucking funny. I my, thought it was funny. In my first unit in the line infantry, <laughs> I was uh, stationed in the Sinai Peninsula as part of a peacekeeping force. We were there just as observers, spread out on remote outposts, each outpost manned by a squad. Okay. An 11-man infantry squad plus one medic. So 12 soldiers on an outpost. Um, and we'd rotate. Half the battalion would be out on the outpost. The other half would be at back at base camp. While back at the base camp, they would be doing uh, quick reactionary force duty, guard duty, uh, some light training, and also going on pass and running around the Middle East. Um, and every you know four weeks or so, we'd rotate back and forth. Um, one of the problems was because we were under this, you know, International Peacekeeping Force Command, um, we, and because we were operating the, uh, the, uh, the outpost operated at squad level, what that meant was that the, the officers, and even the senior non-commissioned officers, they had nothing to do. You know, anyone who's been in the military will tell you, especially in peacetime, you know, they're, they're, you have officers and non-commissioned officers always trying to find stuff for soldiers to do. Right. If there's nothing to do, we'll think of something. Yeah. <clears throat> they did that shit a and lot. And a lot of it is also for senior NCOs and low-ranking officers. It's also they're 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 trying to also, and this is not a bad thing. It's all part of it. It's what's your purpose? Right. You're you're not just showing up at your off. You're not just showing up to sit at your desk and you know twiddle your thumbs and play solitaire. You've got to be having your soldiers do something. 
But because we were under the command of this international force, um, they had no, nothing to do with us. The squads, the, the outposts were self-contained. We had patrols that were done by five-man fire teams. And everything was done at a squad level. And even back at the base camp, what we were allowed to do was limited, uh, limited excuse me, by uh, the terms of the uh, peace treaty. Right. So you had, like I said, people looking for busy work but not able to do it. Right. <laughs> so we had we had a dignitary, a dignitary coming to visit the base camp, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts. <laughs> and uh, Ted Kennedy. And, of course, everyone knew weeks ahead of time. The outpost where we were stationed was not far from the village of Rastasrani. And in between, uh, there was, in the southern part of the Sinai, there was only one airstrip big enough for uh, a a full-size, well, not even a full-size, but for a small cargo plane to land, like a C-130-size plane. Right. Or, in the case of... Ted Kennedy, uh, <laughs> a large private jet. Right. Um, so the plan was, oh, the senator will land at the airfield, and then from there he'll be met by a helicopter, which will take him to the base camp, where he'll, you know, do a meet and greet and do an inspection. A little photo op, walk around. Right. Right. But before that, because our outpost is so close to the airfield, he'll be picked up by a helicopter... They'll do a stop at the outpost so we could. Here's the here's an example. Here, senator, is an example of one of the outposts where our soldiers serve. Blah blah blah, and then from there, go down to the base camp. Right. So now this was four weeks that every non-commissioned officer in our company, as well as our immediate chain of command, our lieutenant, our company commander now had something to do. Uh-huh. And that was micromanage us to fucking death. Oh, God. And come up with stupid shit for us to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, they they started immediately coming out. Okay, what we need to do is... And they, they, they would rehearse every day. This is what you're going to say. This is what you're going to do. You know, meet and greet him. You know, say, my name is Specialist Brennan Rafferty from New York City, New York. You know, blah, 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 blah. My, my purpose. Whatever. Right. Answer basic questions. Blah, blah, blah. And... They wanted us to have spit-shine boots and starched pressed desert uniforms while spawning a fucking remote outpost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the fucking desert. Yes. Spit-shine boots <laughs> in the desert. Yes. <laughs> fucking so... Oh, and God. they had... <clears throat> we had, of course, we had entrenched fighting positions and all this stuff everywhere. And we had fences both... We had barbed wire fences. We had regular fencing around our outpost. And they decided, okay, we want it all clean. It's like this is Put the you fuck. know <laughs> there's like decades worth of garbage from the village outside that the wind's blown against. Well, we want you to clean all that. Okay, these sandbags, you know, thousands of sandbags. These sandbags look dirty. We want you to clean the sandbags. Okay, okay. Now that we've cleaned the sandbags, we, some of these sandbags look torn and and frayed. We want you to replace them. It was just constantly. Oh they, they got us building new fortifications. Just and on up to the battalion command, people just coming and constantly visiting, you know, constantly checking in. Everyone, even though we're out there doing all kinds of busy, stupid shit, that they, they want us 
they're they're coming up with new stuff because this, this is like a yeah. it's almost like a challenge to them. Oh, they've already got you doing stupid shit, huh? Let me think what I can think of. Oh my and god! And they do. It's fucking. I want and to, I they got us. Snap. You know, there we're we're raking outside the fence. We're cleaning. We're cleaning a centuries worth of garbage out there. We got the fucking people from the village. Oh, Laughing at us, uh, we, yeah. <laughs> we got the local cyanide militiamen with their AKs walking by. Oh, what the hell's wrong with you guys? We, we, we look like clowns. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the story's not that good because I'm taking too long to say it. Not really. Well, you know that's the difference. When I write a story, I can go back and edit when I get excessive and repetitive. <laughs> when I speak, not so much. Whatever. But uh, so the day of. Um, they tasked me. There was a big football field side patch of sand uh, behind, you know, our sleeping quarters, and uh, it was my job to like rake it, Just <laughs> rake the fucking sand. It's like the sand. It's the it's the fucking desert. Yeah, man. Well, it doesn't look neat because it's the fucking <laughs> desert. Yeah. Yeah, we want you to rake it. So all right. Rafferty will go out there and rake it, and I did. And what I did was in like big 15 foot tall letters, I wrote out the word Chappaquiddick so that when Kennedy landed and got in his helicopter, he could fly over and see fucking Chappaquiddick in 15 foot tall letters. <laughs> I had nothing against Ted Kennedy. I didn't care one way or another about Ted Kennedy. But it was an excuse. I'm a young punk rock kid. I was probably like 19. It was an excuse to fuck with someone. Yes! So, yes, of course I'm going to do it. (laughs) So, somebody rats me out, I guess, or my lieutenant discovered I can't imagine how. Uh. Uh, What the fuck? And I got my squad leader, my lieutenant, and they bring me into the uh, fucking, into our sleeping area, and he's continuing to yell at me, and then he looks down and freaks out some more. What the fuck? Because on this little table there next to our boombox, I had, well, I, I had put out, deliberately displayed with artwork face up, a couple of Dead Kennedys albums. <laughs> because we anticipated Ted Kennedy walking through. Again, nothing against Ted Kennedy personally. But if you're going to visit my fucking outpost, I'm going to fuck with you. <laughs> yeah. And, it's and, like, and at this point, we're doing, well, I'm raking the fucking desert. I'm fucking cleaning up garbage. It's, I have spit shine boots. It's, right, it's right. like, well, it's fuck just, you. It's also an excuse. It's like, my name is Rafferty. So it's like, for example, we had a British officer come visit us, some commanding general, because there were mul- it was a multinational force. Right. He came to visit our outpost a couple of months earlier, and I put on a really bad Northern Irish accent. <laughs> okay. You know, just so, because we're doing the pass and review, everyone's interviewing, where are you from? My name's Kelly. I'm Private Kelly from Texas. <coughs> What's your name? I'm Special property from Belfast, Northern Ireland. You know, there's no like, what? You know, yeah. just, and my squad, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, it's like, just to fuck with the Brits. Yeah. But, you know, just because why? Because I'm a punk rock kid. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind of shit I did. I was like, everyone's hanging around in the back, and I come running out, waving my fucking M203 and screaming, I can't fucking take it anymore. Right as I set off a bunch of firecrackers, so people think I'm shooting. You know, shit like that. <laughs> nice. That's um, awesome. Listen, you got to break up the monotony and have fun somehow, right? Oh okay. yeah. Oh, we did. We did lots of horrible things, but uh, so I get screamed at. They make me re-rake the fucking the Chappaquiddick. The Chappaquiddick. <laughs> I swear, to, I don't know about the tapes. I didn't. I, I forgot to put them away. Yeah. I, I played stupid. I ain't nobody was fooled. I obviously didn't. Right. But yeah, we were standing out there, lined up in formation, 
uh, fucking people outside the fence laughing at us because we look fucking ridiculous. And Kennedy's plane landed and helicopter picked him up. Fucking flew right past us. <laughs> <laughs> and all four weeks of bullshit and filling sandbags and all kinds of stupid shit. My my lieutenant just like his shoulders slumped and he just like, oh, what the fuck? And his arms out. <laughs> my, my squad is like, what the fuck? I yelled at the helicopter. This is why they keep killing you fuckers. Oh, yeah, nice. Flew by. Yeah, whatever. All of that for fucking nothing. Yeah, well, I never got in trouble for it, though, because I guess everyone was just frustrated and just wanted to forget the whole fucking episode. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's part of being punk rock. You do stupid shit for yeah. fun. Like, I, when I was in the Division Reconnaissance uh, in the Army, I, I'd answer the phone at CQ, you know, and I'd, I'd change my rank. Nice. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> I made myself commissioned. This is Captain Rafferty speaking. Might help you. And one time, one time I had a fucking lieutenant from another unit, you know, call. Oh, oh, Captain Rafferty. This is Lieutenant So and So. For those of you who don't know, I was not an officer, and I was impersonating an officer. And like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and I talked down to him like I outranked him. Well, whatever his name was, you know. Okay, well, Lieutenant Johnson, you. Have your training NCO get in touch with my training NCO. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that kind of shit. Oh, whatever. It's punk rock. It's fucking punk rock. Nice. Well, speaking of punk, let's go back now. Oh, was there more? Yeah, yeah, there's more. There's, um, what? How did you, how did, how did SFA be formed? How, how, how was SFA formed and shit like that? Uh, What's the good deal? Good question. Well, like, because I wasn't part of it. Well, I know I know you weren't initially part of it. Well, how did you be in the band? How did you become a part of the band? Well, okay. SFA formed in 1984. Correct. I My friend this. Mike Bullshit out in Queens Village. Mike Bullshit. He started a little band called SFA, uh, which at the time stood for Spastic Farm Animals, just because he thought it was a funny name. Okay. And then eventually it became SFA, as in stands for anything. Right. Like a play on the Abbott and Costello, who's on first routine. Stands for anything. Who's on first? I don't know. No, third base. Um, right. <laughs> it was, you know, does SFA stand for anything? Yes. Yes. But what does it stand for? Anything. Well, what do you mean? You know, just as, Of course. It was, it was a stupid name. In fact... Jumping around here, when we finally went to record our first album, had to have a little meeting and like, guys, now we're doing a, a serious album. Should we change the name of the band? Nah, nah. So we kept it. Right. But uh, Mike, Mike started SFA. He first actually had a. It was originally a band called Dead People. Okay. And it's funny because years later, um, we did a split seven inch. With a band from Philly. Oh shit! They're on the tip of my tongue. Jeff Matt organized it, and the name of the seven, split seven-inch single was "Dead People Make Us Friends." Like, hey, that's cool. That was the original name of SFA. And uh, anyway, um, it was just a few friends. Uh, this kid Ron uh, Billy, who was our bass player for many many years, was the original guitarist. This kid Ron played bass, who later took over drums, and it was this dorky Queens kid uh, named Timmy who was on drums, um, and they did their first day play for a while. Their first show wasn't until uh, '85, uh, like February of '85, and then Easter of '85, 
And then uh, Timmy left the band in 86 or 85 because he went to go sing for Token Entry. Um, well, that's not the reason why. He was probably embarrassed. <laughs> it was awful, god-awful. I mean, it was like, you listen to the early SFA, and it's Mike, uh, I mean, he's a great guy. You know, but uh, but musically, it was not, you know, it was not. <laughs> um, musically, Mike was a good friend, but basically he would begin every song by apologizing. <laughs> nice. In advance, which was kind of, it kind of got to be a thing. You know, I want to apologize for the next song. Please bear with us. Um, and it was a mess. It was a bunch of kids who were a mess. And it, and it was funny, it was uh, Mike, Mike admittedly is tone deaf. I mean, cricket, Mike's, I don't want to disparage him because he put this thing together. He put out a fanzine at the time, Bullshit Monthly, which was like, uh, Eight and a half by fourteen, with small print scribble that he sold mm-hmm. for like a nickel. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and he was out there involved, and he was also part of like putting on a lot of shows in the later eighties. <coughs> um, but uh, <laughs> Mike, Mike was tone deaf. <laughs> Admittedly, and it's like, I, I don't pretend to be able to carry a tune so well. I, I'm very lucky if I could just keep in time. That that took a lot of practice coming right. in at the right point, um, <laughs> which is also why in, in the uh, in the studio when we record, whenever we had a an engineer say, "Okay, why don't we double up those vocals?" Like, no, I can't do it because right. I'm not going to hit the same mark every time. I mean, by a fraction of a second, right. but. When you're trying to double up vocals, it's noticeable. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't double up vocals, motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm talking to the rest of you who did. <laughs> um, but uh, Mike, so Mike started the band. They they put out uh, uh, three demos. Um, and on the last one, he had. Uh, he had taken a song that I wrote and put it on it, so I guess that's my earliest contribu- contribution. You had never heard it. It was called Reality. Okay. Um, and uh, he put that on, like, the 87 demo. I was in the service at the time. Um, when I got out of the service in 88, um, he invited me to sing with him. And he wanted to try this thing with dual vocals. And there's, there's kind of a, a couple funny stories with that. I mean, it was going to be, you know, alternating two tone-deaf guys trying to alternate <laughs> vocals. One whose time is fucked with, up, one whose with, uh, with Yeah, with, a, with, a, with musicians who barely could play. Um, and that's not true of all of them. At that point, actually, uh, we had... Um, I think Ron was in the pl- process of leaving the band as drums at the time. Jareb took over. He recorded on our 7-inch, um, which was a disaster. Uh, and we had Jan and Billy, guitar and bass, who were with us till Billy, till the end, Jan almost. Um, <laughs> and it used to work that... Uh, I had this tattoo on my shoulder at a time, which was like kind of this abstract thing that I had done because I thought, you know, it was a personal variation on a chaos symbol. I had drawn it in the early 80s. 
you know, with uh, circles inside of a chaos symbol, light on one side, dark on the other, you know, the duality of man, whatever you want to say about it. Right. But uh, I had it tattooed on my arm, and it was my first tattoo. And uh, Mike also had this weird abstract tattoo on his arm. Um, like a series of boxes. Okay. And so we started doing stuff as little inside jokes when we make flyers. Uh, he would put his tattoo symbol on the flyer next to my symbol, showing that we were both singing that show. Gotcha. Mike also was doing a lot of road trips at the time. And if Mike was just singing by himself, he would put his tattoo symbol. And... If I was singing by myself, it would just be my tattoo symbol. And over time, the passage of months and years, it just became. People thought that the abstract tattoo, uh-huh. which was meant just to be Brendan, right. the symbol for Brendan, was assumed to be an SFA logo, but it really wasn't. Right. It was just something we kept putting on the flyers to show. Brendan singing, not Mike. Right. Uh huh. Well, that <laughs> and then the it kind of stuck. It's, it's the SFA logo now. <laughs> it kind of stuck. Is. Yeah. And it's funny. It's um, that first seven inch was such garbage. It was so awful. Uh, we had uh, recorded it. It was dual vocals. It was a mess. The engineer was fucking high as shit. And uh, Mike went into the studio Separate from all of us He wanted to remix it himself Remember I said he's tone deaf Yes (laughs) So it showed Plus as much as And Mike if you're listening I know it wasn't on purpose (laughs) But as much as he wanted to like Share certain songs with me I kind of got lost in most of the mix (laughs) Which is okay Because I was awful I was truly awful because I was singing along to Mike's songs so I was trying to sing like Mike instead of trying to sing like me right Um, to to use a literal version of a classic phrase I I found my voice eventually my own voice okay (laughs) Um, um, so the, the seven inch was awful and Mike Mike Mike, like like someone running in disgrace, Mike took off on one of his long trips just as the 7-inch was coming out. And we sold it through mail order and sold it at shows. And uh, I sold it at record stores, of course, walked around, you know, carrying a duffel bag, going downtown, making the rounds to the record, Rocks in Your Head, Venus, Bleaker Bobs, trying to sell 7-inches. Um, and whenever someone would want to... and, and we actually had the, the the records themselves were eight and a half by fourteen sheets of paper yeah. folded inward and folded in half. Records slipped in, and so you know we're there gluing them together ourselves, the sleeves. And uh, are there any of those at, like still around at at, at all? Like you think? I'm, I'm sure there's probably like one or two. Yeah. I mean, we never repressed or anything. Right. Um, and they were all all the covers were just at a copy shop. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we also made um, we made stickers and inserts, multiple inserts. And then when I was taking over, we had new songs that weren't on the seven inch. I was printing all new song sheets 
um, like sing-along sheets, SFA sing-along sheets, folding them up and putting them in there. Yeah. And um, so the packaging was nice, but the record was awful. And I deliberately, <laughs> you know, people would, you know, as you're in a band and you've got, well, you're walking around with a bag of records at all times. And so people come up to you and ask you, you know, hey, can I get a copy of your record because I book shows? Or can I get a copy of your record because I write a fanzine and want to review it? So I knew it sounded awful. <laughs> so I would say, sure, hold on. I'd reach into my bag, I'd snap the record in half. Oh, shit. And hand it to them. Oh, you just snap your own shit. <laughs> yes! Because the art was nice, the lyrics were good. Uh, let them get. Let them judge us on that. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I didn't want them to hear that. <laughs> it was so bad. It's so funny. And I remember. I even had. A Who does that? I've never. We heard did that. that. I know. That. It was awful. It's awesome. <laughs> we had. A, in fact, John Regan, who used to book the Rat up in Boston, he was like. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah. Sure. I guess I'll book you guys. I mean, I haven't. Yeah. I haven't heard. It's like, well, the. You got an idea from the sing-along sheet? Yeah, all right. <laughs> you got an idea. We'll send you a new one. Oh, my God. Snap that one, too. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. Must have broken the mail. Sorry, man. Oh, my God. That's what we did. I mean, it also goes into... Um, eventually, jump forward a year later... When did you start working at CB's? About a week after I got out of the Army. Okay. It was a matter of... I knew the people there. I knew Hilly. Right. Um, uh, plus, I, and unfortunately, I, his his wife, Karen, ex-wife Karen, and um, I knew a few people that worked there, and I would hang out there. Yeah. And uh, it was literally, at the time, in 88, working... I mean, different people worked security over the years, but uh, for the matinees, security... At the time, it was primarily these two brothers, Frank and James. Okay. And uh, there was a big show. They were shorthanded. And uh, Frank, James, and Troy. And they were like, can we hire Brendan? And Karen, who was running the matinees at the time, was like, yeah, sure. Beautiful. Hire Brendan. And I was friends with Connie, who booked the matinees as well. Uh, Hey, Connie. Um, and uh, so yeah I worked the matinees and I was friendly with the people there and uh, <clears throat> once in a while once in a while I uh, I get a phone call it was part time at the time I was working actually full time at other nightclubs right. you know doing the, the upscale late 80's club kid Wall Street cokehead velvet rope uh. Uh, nightclubs where the girl with the clipboard Looks through a crowd of a thousand people. Says mm, you. Yes. And, yeah. Well, I worked those. Okay. There was so much money being made. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm sure. I'm oh sure. my god. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, some guy from Wall Street pulls up with like five people, hands you five hundred dollars. I don't want to wait. Right. Sure. Sure. <laughs> and you get a few of those a night, and then all the security guys split it up. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't getting that at fucking CB's on the Bowery, man. <laughs> no. No. But I worked there on Sunday matinees, and it was always funny. You know, whatever. We got paid a few bucks. Um, then we'd all go out to 
dojos on St. Mark's and, you know, have some food and shit, sit back and relax. And uh, once in a while, I'd get a call, you know, from someone at the club. Hey, we need you to come in and uh, can, we got a big show and we need a stage security. Whatever, just in case. And, and it's very relaxed. You know, you just hang out by the stage and yeah. nothing. And I also, sometimes I bullshitted my way into work at shows that I just wanted to see but not have to pay for. Yeah. Like, uh, for example, Sham 69. Okay. There are pictures of me working the stage at Sham 69. They didn't hire anyone to work security. Right. I just walked in. They knew me at the door. Hey, Brendan, you working tonight? I said, yeah. Walked in. There you go. <laughs> walked on stage, had a couple of beers, sang along with Sham 69, and then got paid at the end of the night. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you made your own hours. Exactly. Fuck it. I started working full-time at CBGB. To jump ahead, because I'm sure this will come up. Um, I started working full-time in 93. Okay. Uh, the 20th anniversary was happening, and they, at that time, they needed security all the time. Right. And then from security, I started doing filling in on the door. And the door is a night manager position, and then there were a couple people who worked the door... One screwed up on a night I wasn't there. Attacked someone with a bar and wound up, you know, getting fired. Attacked so, someone at the bar or with a with bar? a bar with a bar. <laughs> okay, like a tire iron type thing. Yeah, I, uh, nice guy, Sal, and I warned him. Don't hit people outside the club. Don't hit people outside the club and don't use a weapon. Uh huh. Somebody pissed him off. He grabbed a a piece of pipe, chased him outside and beat him. He's like, what? can't help you. Yeah. God. <laughs> but I started working there full time then. Um, yeah. And during the 20th anniversary, it was like every day there were big shows. Yeah. Especially that December. There was, if you looked at the calendar from December 93, you'd have a fucking heart attack. It was like, okay, tonight's the cramps. Tomorrow's the B-52s. Then we have the damned. Then Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, then Anthrax. Then, you know, it was just like... Yeah. That was every day. Shows like that. It was ridiculous. Sick. Sick. Now, I asked Frank, I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but I always wondered who has... Because they were... Like, most of the sets in the shows were recorded, correct? No. Video recorded? No. No? There was always that monitor. Yes and no. In the final years of CBGB, there were no there were no video cameras there until I think in two thousand we put them in. Oh, and there were two cameras. Okay. There were two cameras, one at an angle above the lighting board, and one basically just forward and on the ceiling in front of the uh, sound booth. Because I always noticed right by the sound booth there was always that little monitor. Yep. And this is in the nineties. Yeah, not the nineties. It would have been two thousand. And I know this for a fact because really? we had the system set up so you could zoom in with the camera, alternate with the camera. I was doing a lot of the filming. When I mean, a lot of stuff was recorded and a lot of stuff was never recorded. Ah, oh, there's some fucking shit that I was... Because I was going to say, if it was all recorded, who has all that shit? Well, a lot of times what it was was, you know, you're a band. Now, here's the thing. You would record... Um, the, you, they simply literally had the two monitors, 
but the two cameras, but only one feet at a time going into a VCR. Right. And the ah. sound, the two-channel sound coming into the VCR was coming from the soundboard. So right. you had a sound mix from the board, um, which was pretty solid and clear. Yeah. Um, like you've probably seen, probably one of the most famous from that period was in 2000, uh, the Harley and John reunion Chromags video right. from then. I, I wasn't at the show, but I saw the DVD and all that stuff, yes. Well, I don't know the DVD, who, huh. who, what video that is. Right. But I know what I was able to do was using the two cameras, I would uh, video the band and like I'd have camera one recording and then I'd set up the shot for camera two and then switch while setting up a new shot for camera one. Gotcha. So I could make two cameras look like six cameras. Yes. Um, but most of the times it was just one camera recording not moving and most of it was not kept by us it was hey just like you go into a a club hey can you record my band sure five bucks and give me a cassette tape it was yeah ten bucks and give me a videotape and you get a video of your band so a lot of bands video themselves we didn't keep archives that wasn't until later and that wasn't always every band it wasn't until the final year I think where someone got the bright idea, hey, let's archive everything and everyone. Yeah. So I was wondering, because if those were around, I always wanted to know, December 23rd, 1992, the last morning, the final Agnostic Front show for that time period, I always wanted to fucking see that again. I wanted to see it too. Yeah. Were you there that night? Was, yeah, yeah. In fact... I'm all over that fucking I'm thing. all over the album cover. In fact... So am I. In fact, I sang last morning. Yeah, well... The, if there's well, video of it, I think Roger dubbed it over in the studio, but it was very common for Roger to hand off the mic for certain songs. Well, the uh, I sang last morning. I'm the one that says motherfucker at the end of your mistake. <laughs> that would be me. Like, yeah, I was all over that thing. I'm all in the layout and everything. It was an amazing fucking show. And I always wanted to know, because, I don't know, for some reason I thought that that shit was videotaped. And I always wanted to know. I'm where sure that somebody sh- videotaped. You know what? That's on YouTube, but it's a really shit. Shitty, shitty copy. You'll have to find it. It's on um, YouTube. But I gotta tell you, it's so common. I mean, playing in a band, I mean, now, you know, a hundred people are vi- recording you. Back oh, then, yeah. videotapes were so rare, and I can't count how many times over the years, especially in the 80s and early 90s, where I'd see a guy with a video camera while my band was playing, and I'd say, hey, man, it's cool. We got no problem with you videotaping us. Right. Just do us a favor. Let us get a copy. Sure. You'd never get a fucking copy. <laughs> I'm still fucking waiting. Of course you are. It's and it doesn't just go for small things, too. We did, uh, we did like, television interviews in Europe. And it was like, this is great. Yeah. We're happy to do this. Can you just give us a copy? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, when? When? Never! <laughs> never! <laughs> I remember we had a... We played, uh... The Zach Carl in Essen, Germany, and you know, local news station came down. They filmed us. They, we did an interview, and I was like, "They're like, can we do this?" And I said, "Under one condition only. Give us a copy, please." Yeah. <laughs> Give them their got- address, contact information. No, nothing. No, never, never. I, I think over the years played, of touring, man. I've gotten like 
five videos from people, some of them crappy quality. Like I'll see, oh, I'll find something on YouTube. It's like, hey, wait a second, who filmed that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> who filmed us in Leipzig? And then I'll have to write the guy, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you send me? And yeah. I'll get like a crappy little MP4 or something. Ah, <laughs> shitty. But some people, some, hey, if you're listening, I know there are a couple guys that were good. The guy who did the Leipzig video sent me the full video on PAL. I had to convert it. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to the guy in Leipzig, Germany. So what was it? So Leipzig, Germany. So the last time you guys were out, we were talking before the glitch and before the before we went on the first time. You went to the last time you were across the pond was in the nineties, ninety six. Yeah. You said. Yeah, we. Uh, Fuck. We had done. Uh, we had done a few tours. The, the European tour thing is funny because. Uh, they take that shit serious over there, man. In, in many ways. It's, it's so good. It is. It was such a breath of fresh air. And especially our, our first European tour was in 91. And we had this guy, Stefan Rose, from Navigator Booking, book us. Um, we went over there with low expectations. We had a record label that lied to us. I mean, they, they were horrible. I mean... I'm sure they're not in existence anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not. No, they did... I think they did Us, Upfront, a Johnny Thunders album, and a Beach Boys album. Okay. Well, that's a little eclectic there. You think? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> uh, Venus Records, who also were owned by Venus, the record store, <clears throat> which was on St. Mark's, and then before that it was down on A Street. And, uh, yeah, they that was, well, that's a separate story altogether, which is kind of funny. Our first album. We were fucking idiots. We had come off of a 7-inch a year earlier that was crap. Took us forever to unload a thousand of them, even the broken ones. And we wound (laughs) up, like most bands at the time, we saved up money uh, to go into the studio. Right. Like, you you have your band fund. You had your way way of doing things. Whatever we made off of selling merchandise and playing shows, first, whoever drove gas money would be covered. Then we... Some money would go towards, you know, everyone got a piece of the money, and then you'd have some money going to the band fund, which paid for studio time, rehearsal, and then saving for recording someday. We had no record label. Right. It's one of the things I'm proud to say, and also pissed to say. <laughs> Even though we signed to different record labels, never, never in all the years we played and all the records we did, never did we ever enjoy any support from any record label ever huh not a single poster not a single promotion not a single ad in a fanzine you know promoting our tours nothing really a lot of bands like I I started talking to you a little bit about this beforehand the expenses of doing a tour sure which are incurred by the band yeah and in most cases even with independent record labels the record label covers these. Right. Because the label wants you to go on the road because you're on the road, you're going to sell records. Right. Um, that's just the business. Sure. You want to go on the road because you're never going to see a dime from record sales, not any real money anyway, <clears throat> the way the companies break down money. Your money's going to be made on the road. Right. From ticket sales and merch sales. Yeah. Um, so... The normal incurred expenses, plane tickets, 
equipment rental, vehicle rental, uh, promotional materials, advertising, most record labels pay those costs. Right. Or part of it. Or if it's, uh, if a band books it through a booking agency like MAD, right. um, the record label will give money towards MAD and then the rest the band makes up along the way. Right. We never had that. We never had a dime. We even had our booking agency call our record label asking them, will you give any support? And the label saying, no, why would we? Not because they didn't think we were worth it, but right. they're going on the road anyway. Yeah. yeah. Whether we give support or not, fuck right. <laughs> Oh, God. Fuck. Um, <laughs> so we went into the studio with our own money, saved up, and... Uh, Called up Don Fury. He had a studio over on Spring Street. Yeah. And, hey, we want to come in. And he had just... he had, This is how long ago it was. He had just uh, installed a 16-track setup. Before that, everything he had done at Don Fury's... Like, all the classic stuff. The Victim in Pain album, all that. A-track. It's um, so crazy, too. It's fucking right, crazy. but there are ways around that. You know, yeah, you yeah, can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Um... <laughs> Like, you could record eight tracks of drums and then put them on one track in the final mix. But, you know, but, right. uh, but his, we were, he had done a Youth of Today 7-inch, was his first 16-track recording. We were his first 16-track album. Really? We weren't the first one released, though. Okay. <laughs> we were oh, the first boy. one recorded. <laughs> okay. And we did it in record time. Because, and this is true of many bands doing their first album, these were songs we were we were on the road all the time. Yeah, not big tours, but you know, like a doing three shows in a weekend. Okay, you know, in different places every weekend. Yeah, and then sometimes a week here, a week there in the summer, that kind of thing. We were constantly playing. You know, we we, we were playing songs. So many th- we we knew them inside and out. Sure. So we go into the studio. <clears throat> Don Ferry locks off several days, and we're like, "Why are you doing this? We're not going to need that." And we recorded all the basic tracks in one day. And the only reason we didn't do the guitar overdubs and the vocals that day was because we were waiting on some people to do backup vocals to join us. And also, he said, you know what, just take this raw tape home, listen to it, and decide what you want to do. Okay. And so we came in, and the next day we finished it. Yeah. Um, but that was it. We did the thing in two days. And Don was happy with it. We were mostly happy with it I mean we were very happy with the recording and uh, I think any artist musician author sculptor painter whatever you're never truly satisfied with what you are true and if you are you're full of shit right like I've met some artists who are like this is my painting isn't it wonderful it's like wow you are pretentious yeah you suck you're yeah man your fucking painting <laughs> stinks too <laughs> but you know, everyone's like and you, you ask most people who play in a band it's hard sometimes like to listen to your own recordings, especially earlier ones, because all you could think of is what you would have done differently. Right. Um, but we were we were happy for the most part. There were a couple songs like, uh, why are we still playing that song? But we did it anyway. We never played them live, that kind of thing. So songs like that. Yeah. Um, j- just to fill out the album. And uh, Don Fury turned to us and he said, hey, he was he was happy with it. He was proud. Yeah, this, this, is, this is good stuff. This was our, our first album, The New Morality. Right. And he said, who's putting it out? And we kind of shrugged. I guess we are. 
Yeah. He's like, what, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Which is a great fucking record, Because by the way. we, we were, like I said, we had just spent a year trying to sell a thousand copies of Shitty 7-inch, which we still had hundreds left over. Yeah. Um, and most of them, like, our guitar player, Jan, out of the back of his car, through mail order, sure. at shows, you know. Breaking them in half, <laughs> whatever we could do. Maybe people buy twice. <laughs> uh, but uh, and one oh, uh, going back, I had a, I wrote this fanzine in a letter because there, the, the the seven inch had no title. It was just SFA New York because when Mike, when Mike created the name, he just decided the name would be SFA New York. Right. And the 7-inch had SFA New York in two separate spots written on the cover. So that's why it's considered the New York EP. Right. And so some people thought it was the New York EP. I was like, no, no, that's the name of the band. And, uh, like, there was an SFA in Albuquerque we were going to be confused with. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, uh, we, uh, I saw this one fanzine review. I thought it was awesome. Because here's the thing. So many people were afraid to talk shit. Um, <laughs> and that's just true. It's like no one's going to say, this new agnostic front sucks ass. These guys are dicks. No. And no one's hand- ever going to say that. No one says because, that now. <laughs> because they're terrified. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that. Right. But uh, I'm just using them as an example. Okay, Roger? Right. <laughs> Vinny! Uh, oh, Vinny. Fucking Vinny. <laughs> Vinny. Vinny. Hey, Brendan, how's it going, Brendan? Hey, yeah, when's Cause for Alarm playing next? I'm not in Cause for Alarm, Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> That's CFA. Uh, I'm in... All oh, right, 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 Brendan. All right, right. That's awesome. <laughs> but, uh... I love fucking stigma. <laughs> oh, I do, too. He's a great guy. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but fucking, uh... Jesus Christ. Where was I going with this? Uh, 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 this fanzine, yes, this fanzine <laughs> just tore us to pieces. It's a disgrace, and they call this New York. This is a piece of shit, you know. And I'm reading this review, and I'm like, this is fucking awesome. Yeah, it is. This sucks so bad. And I wrote him a letter, right? Because I, I didn't know who it was, and this is what you did in the old days. Yeah, I just looked up the name in the PO box on. The address, and, and I wrote a him a letter. And you wrote a fucking letter. Mm-hmm. And a month later, he was like, "Hey, I got your letter." And I was like, "Oh, cool." And what the letter I wrote was, "Thank you." Yeah, <laughs> it sucked. It was a piece of shit. <laughs> I break copies when I give them to people. <laughs> I told them, "You are so right." Thank you for having the balls to be honest. <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, I'm glad." I opened this letter. I thought, "Oh, fuck!" And uh-huh. then he read. It. <laughs> I also, I would say, I, I, years later, I had somebody approach me at a show. He's like, I got your note. He's like, what? Because I, I would write, like, help notes in the set because we packaged them. Like, I'm so sorry you're reading this. You don't listen to this record. It's garbage. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, in one of the records, I wrote, like, a two-page letter about how awful it was. And, uh, and some guy, like, ten years later, hey, I got your letter. Okay, thanks. Okay, wow. <laughs> but, so anyway, um... Don Fury turns to us and says, hey, who's, who's releasing this record? And I was like, uh, we are. We're going to sell it ourselves. And he, in his most polite way, he said, what are you guys, idiots? Yeah. He is like, if you don't have anyone doing this, let me shop it around for you for a while. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Now, we knew nothing about this. Right. And we thought this was a bad idea. 
because we didn't imagine we were going to sell 500 of these fucking things. Right. And, uh, hey, if he wants to, he can get us a deal. Great. Yeah. <laughs> we were also stupid, drunk, punk kids. I should emphasize this a lot. And we, we were not always making the best decisions. Of course not. And we made some really bad decisions. Um, and this was the first big one. Uh, he came to us with several offers because he had an advantage. Now, we were never a big, giant band. We had a we nice were, little run there. We had a, a run there for a while. Yeah. And we, did, we got ourselves to the point where we could headline CBs and, you know, we could play in the middle on a bigger venue in the States and then overseas, you know, that was a whole different story. So yeah. We were fucking the David Hasselhoff of punk rock in Germany. We were fucking yeah. playing huge venues. But, um... <laughs> but, uh... Here in the States, we, and especially before we released the album, you know, we had no... We, we didn't think we were ever going to get, like, more than 80 people who knew us to come see us. Right. But the point is, we were well-known enough. In fact, we had actually just started gotten to the point where we were headlining CBs okay. and we were recording this uh, and I, to be clear not to capacity crowds <laughs> but we had gotten to that point right as we were recording this album so if you knew if you were if you were a label that did hardcore you heard of us right you might not have known who we were or heard our sound outside of New York but you knew the name yeah. whatever from Seeing flyers from reading scene reports in Maximum Rock and Roll, whatever. Right. You know, there was always an underground network. And uh, so he had the advantage. Don Fury was going around with a cassette tape. Hey, I record the band. You guys know me. I record this band. The band is it's mixed and mastered. So we had one really good thing going for us besides the fact that, okay, we know who they are. And if they're willing to play all the time now, right. when they've got no one helping them and no one, no record out, they'll probably be doing a lot more once they do. Sure. But Don, we also had the advantage of when you sign a band, you don't know what you're getting. They could go into the studio, they could self-destruct and not record. They could spend two months, you know, wasting your time and barely recording three songs, or they could fucking. Uh, they could, they 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 could you know whatever they 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 could give you a shitty album yeah so for us it was Don Fury going around okay you know the name of the band SFA the album's done so if you're interested this is what you would be getting right so he got some offers and in retrospect all of them were good offers right and we turned every one of them down fuck. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> uh, there was Nicky Garrett from the UK Subs. His record label, New Red Archives, said, we want to release this. Right. Now, being a young punk, what do I care about? Uh, we just want artistic control. Like, we, we even knew what that meant. All right. And the label was like, okay. You know, we, we want to design the record label. We want to design the record cover. Right. Like, we knew what the fuck we were doing. Right. Which, by... The record cover was me working at a copy shop and cutting and pasting sure. and little rub-on sticky letters, which is why it looks crooked, that wasn't deliberate, <laughs> and little razor marks, because I was doing lines nice. off the artwork. <laughs> That's Not straight-edge band, I should mention. No. 
<coughs> and uh, Nikki and I was doing lines off the artwork. <laughs> New Red Archives said, "We'll put out this SFA album." New Red Archives had just re-released uh, the, the Reagan Youth album, and they remixed it. I really didn't like the remix, and uh, on principle, because it bothered me that they remixed that Reagan Youth album. I said, fuck those guys. Oh, shit. <laughs> so we said no. <laughs> I'm standing, I'm sticking, staying true. Right. <laughs> then we had Hawker Records. I don't know if you're aware of that. Who they were. No. Uh, who did Hawker become? You would know the name. I can't believe I can't remember. Everyone listening, you're, this is like a game show. You're all shouting out the answer right now because you all know who Hawker became. They became a very well-known label. And Hawker had put out like a bunch of stuff at the time. Motherfucker, it's gonna kill me. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> they they were the way to go. But they wanted like a, a I think it was a three album deal. Okay. We didn't know what that meant. Right. So we said no. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that is, fuck you no. <laughs> exactly. We thought three albums We just made one album. They want us to give them three albums. We don't have three albums. Right. <laughs> we didn't realize that it meant that they had first option in our next two albums. Right. We just thought we had to quickly come up with two more all of a sudden. So instead of bothering to ask, hey, what does it mean? No. 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 Fuck that. <laughs> um, then we had, um, we had Caroline Records. Okay. Um, oh, it's killing me. Hawker Records, who they became. Yeah, look it up. Okay, okay. Caroline <laughs> Records. Caroline Records. Like, oh, Caroline was a big deal. Mostly like alt independent at the time, and you know, working at CBGB, we we always knew all the Caroline girls and everything. Caroline wanted us for a two record deal. Again, we didn't know what a two record deal was, but uh, we were willing to go for that for Caroline. But I decided, you know what? Let me. Let me go ahead and uh, let me go ahead and talk to Richie from Underdog, because okay. Underdog had just put out an album on Caroline Records. Let me get the scoop. So uh, I went over. Uh, I think he was living on Mulberry Street at the time, and I said, "Hey, Richie, uh, we just got an offer from Caroline. And uh, what do you think? Are these guys trustworthy?" And he's like, "Ah, they're a bunch of fucking dicks," or or something to that effect. He told about all this bad experience he had with them. Roadrunner. Yeah. <laughs> Roadrunner. Right. Okay. Okay, that one. Okay. Sorry. You're familiar with them, right? A little bit. A little bit. Um, Sorry. I wanted to help you out with that because I know it was driving you nuts. It was, and it would have, it would have kept me up too. Paul could become Roadrunner Records. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, they wanted three albums. Fuck that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. That would have been tour support. And yeah, yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there was also another label that I can't say on. Uh, okay. Here, but uh, we wound up not going with them. They were the best deal. The best deal. <laughs> this other label that I won't mention. But then uh, we had a, a band meeting at a bar called Mona's on Avenue B, and we were really all drunk and. I gave them the offers, and I said, hey, we got this one offer from this label. They want to put us out and put us on the road, possibly. 
And Billy, our bass player, said, yeah, I went to school with a guy from that label. He was a metalhead. He used to make fun of punks. Fuck that guy. And so we <laughs> oh said, fuck that guy. God. And <clears throat> we kept drinking. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fucking funny. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we turned those guys down. And, uh... My God! But we turned down Caroline because Richie Underdog said he had a bad deal with them. I later found out it wasn't that bad of a deal and we probably would have done great on Caroline. <laughs> but yeah. it is what it is. We didn't know what we were doing. And then we had an offer from Venus Records. Again, who? Mm-hmm. You turned down all these labels for Venus? Yeah. Venus said, yeah, yeah, you guys could have artistic control. You only want one album? Fine, sure, no problem. And uh, so we signed one album deal with Venus Records, artistic control, which is a really great idea. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we uh, forgot to get some things in the contract. <laughs> like looking at the books. Like... Uh, a release date. Oh, my God. In fact, what we also turned down... Not turned down. It might have been kind of a mutual turn down. Uh, there was a young label at the time, uh, Blackout Records. Yes. And Bill Wilson, great guy. Yeah. Love you, Bill. Bill was like, I'd like to do it, but I can't right now. Uh, because he had, you know, small label, small budget, and he already had, like several albums scheduled for release over the coming X, X number of months. Right. And he said, I, you know, if you want to do it, be happy to do it, but it would probably be about a year from now. And I'm like, no, no, we can't wait. We just recorded this. We want to, we want to you know, go on the road and support it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, uh, Venus apparently... There was no... We didn't know. We learned every record company we had, with every contract we had, we learned what to do and what not to do. Uh, Just learning experiences of just being fucked. And this was our first time being fucked. One, we had no right to look at the books. So however many records we sold was based on their word. Um, Also, there was no scheduled release. God. They waited almost two years to release it. Oh my God! This all opening. How shit. long did they wait to release it? <laughs> it came out. If our second album had not had been delayed, it would have come out before our first album. Oh my because God! Our first album beat our second album by I think weeks. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Also, we just as far as getting <laughs> fucked over by a label, we had no right to look at the books. But I knew where their offices were on Broadway. I knew where their store was on St. Mark's. And at the time, I was not the calm, nicer person that I became in later years. Like right now. I was, I was a big, burly, walk in and fucking start kicking shelves over and grabbing people by the collar kind of person. Right. Um... Which is how I approach things. And <laughs> I thought that's what you could happen to I thought that's what was gonna happen to me when <laughs> no. this fucking thing fucked up. How many records were sold, how many 
never get a straight answer. They never tell us. Oh, God. Um, so, one way we found out was, at first we were getting numbers from the pressing plant. I had gone there personally. I'd gotten friendly, also part of being younger. I, I, I was a better-looking, leaner guy, and I used to be a little flirty back then with the ladies, and it did well for me. That also helped us get shows in some places, and it helped me get uh, to know some of the, this girl at the record comp- at the pressing plant. And she was giving me numbers on pressing, and then finally she said, I can't, I can't give you any more numbers. Um, the label had tried to lie and say, well, we haven't done any re- represses. Uh. Meanwhile, we know that they had done, they had printed enough inserts for two full pressings. Yet we were seeing records. I would walk into the record store at Venus Records, grab a record off the shelf, rip open the side, look, no insert. And then I'd look at the back. Uh, it was black and white art, but there was a printing error in the first two pressings where there was just a blue smudge. Okay. Inside the white lettering. Okay. On every copy. No big deal. It was just like a little smudge. It, you could read it, you know, it was like whatever. On the bottom, you know, produced and engineered by blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but we were starting to see records that didn't have that blue smudge oh, anymore. Oh, that, that looks like a fucking reprint to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then going to Europe for the first time, which is where this all began. I talk in a circular ways. You'll forgive me. That's fine. Um, We're doing well this time around. Our record company <laughs> said, uh, we went to them and said, hey, listen. I, I went to one of the guys who worked for the record company, not the boss of the record company, who ripped us off. I mean, he was just the underling who just always had this look, I'm so sorry, I can't tell you, on his face. Oof. And I would say, listen, we're going to Europe. How are we doing on sales over there? Just to get an idea. And he gave me a number. Like, well, because they were still trying to say they only sold a thousand copies. <laughs> and we did, um, we had done, uh, he said, oh, we, we sold a couple hundred in Europe. So when we first got to Europe, by the, by the time we got the third show, we were like, I guess everybody who bought our album is here. <laughs> and so are their friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Europe. Oh my god. The European scene. Then, besides the fact, one of the things that's really nice, especially for anyone who's traveled in the states doing touring, besides the fact that you have long driving distances, you know, New York to DC, you know, to Richmond to you know, going doing these coasts, you got eight hour drive, sometimes longer, days off just to cover distances across the desert. Um, but in Europe, you know, okay, we're playing in Amsterdam tomorrow. We're in Berlin. Let's go. That's it. Yeah. And uh, a couple hours. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Um, also, there was a, a natural tendency, and because in most places, especially in Germany, the government subsidizes the arts, even local bands with no draw, they were taken care of. Right. It, w- it was kind of assumed, you know, you got a couple cases of beer. You got a place to stay and you got fed. Right. Even if you were the band that we just formed this afternoon. Right. You were taken care of. That's just the way it was. Right. So for a bigger touring band, it was great. You know, it wasn't, you know, we're not sleeping in the car tonight and, you know, scrounging the trash for food. We're we're getting paid. Uh, We're making good money. We thought we were making great money. 
Well, it turned out we were making very good money. Um, okay. More than we'd ever seen before. Right. So we were just happy. Sure. Um, and there, there's a story to impart there. Um, but the beauty of touring Europe, just, just the tour itself, I'm going to get into the scene in a second, was that, you know, you're seeing these other countries, you have these short drives... I mean, some bus, some bands, and we had the opportunities to do. We always said no, do nightliner bus tours because management companies like you to do that, where you drive through the night, get to the city the next day, and they don't have hotel expenses. You sleep in the bus. You look like a pig. You live like a pig, mm-hmm. and you look like a rock star. Right. Um, and you don't get to enjoy any time. You get to a show, you get to a venue at 6 a.m., great, you're out in the middle of the woods next to an empty hall. Right. And you're waiting. And then people show up at night, you have a great time, you play the show, you want to hang out with people or get into trouble, and you can't. Because you got to get on the bus to go drive to the next country. Right. We always stuck with the vans and the hotels or some place to sleep in some squad or something. This way, you know, get to a place in the afternoon, sound check, hang around, see the city, play the show, then have a great time, go to a party afterwards. Do shit, yeah. And then the next morning, get up, and the locals that we met and hung out the night before showing us around some Mm -hmm. cool stuff. Um, So, touring Europe on that aspect was great. You got to see these countries and cities and little towns and meet these people. That, you know, if you were a tourist traveling with your family, would cost you a fortune. Yeah. So you got, it's, it's, a, it's a real cultural eye-opening experience, and it's wonderful in that regard. Yeah. <coughs> the scene, especially in Germany, where Germany always had, always, a strong counterculture movement. You know, ever since the, ever since the war, yeah, you have generations growing up with you know great antipathy towards their their elders, yeah, uh, and you know the country split in half, and you have very involved political people and and socially conscious people, and it was like if you were to compare scenes around the world on a volume knob. Fucking Germany was 11. Yeah. You know, these people, this was a way of life. And a lot of what I was seeing in the 90s, especially in Germany and other parts of Europe, too, um, reminded me of that, you know, pure heart of what was happening in the early and mid-80s, what I saw. Yeah. I, again, in case it was bleeped out, lost, I wasn't there for the birth. I wasn't there for the beginning. I can only imagine what that was like. But just from what I saw, it was, you know... It reminded us so much of that, and it was, we fell in love with the scene, not just because, you know, we were being, you know, we had these great crowds. I mean, that that was a major ego boost. Yeah. And coming back to America really, really put us in our place. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Time to get real fucking humble now. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) that first tour, we were nervous. You know, we'd walk into a place... Hey, welcome, you're the band. We look around, oh shit, this place is huge. I hope I hope there are enough people, it doesn't look too empty. And then they take us backstage, open up the fridge filled with beers, top to bottom, and dinner's in an hour, and like, 
we're SFA. You sure you got the right guys? Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then by the end of the tour, we'd walk into a big place and we'd laugh. How are they going to fit everyone? Because we were doing gangbusters. And a lot of that came to a, was a result of one zine over there I got to give credit to. Um, there was a zine called Zap. Okay. Uh, it was a German language zine. I mean, we, we did well in Europe overall, but really especially in Germany. And uh, the we had done an interview, uh, it must have been like 1990 or so, okay. uh, for Zap Magazine, it, it was sitting on Rivington Street, having a few beers, uh, and a couple people are interviewing us. We had no idea. As far as we're concerned, this is like, Zap was like something, you know, stapled together two pages, some kid in his basement. Right. But Zap was, you know, like a a flip side or an MRR, only bigger, uh, almost like a spin magazine size as far as distribution. Right. And it was available on newsstands. It was like, it was a magazine magazine. It was legit. In fact, uh, months after we did the interview, um, you know, this girl from Zap says, hey, you know, here, you want a copy? And I was like, yeah, sure. I was like, whoa <laughs> it's a magazine yeah and uh, I owe them a lot of credit uh, Moses from Zap uh, Moses on the dish via Nichts. without you we are nothing okay because they did so much for us um, they uh, they loved us they they, you know, made us like the album of the year. And really? Our, our interview, we didn't come off like a bunch of schmucks. It's another thing. German kids and the European scene, they paid attention to what bands said. Yeah. And it hurt them. Uh, 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 Warzone had a, had a tour canceled because there were rumors about them. That had to be fixed. Breakdown had a tour canceled. I remember coming back from tour in 91 and, you know, going to find Jeff. Jeff, you got to go to fucking Europe. Every place we played, the opening local German band covered Breakdown. Of course. <laughs> it was like it got to be a running joke. Who's yeah. doing Breakdown tonight? Yeah. <clears throat> it's like these guys know you. They love you over there. You got to go. And they did an interview also for the same magazine. When we did our interview, I'm military and history savvy. The two are interchangeable, I think, and uh, it was right around the, after the Germ after the Berlin Wall fell, and me and Jan especially were they're talking to us about German politics, not expecting us to be able to answer. We did, and I was talking about you know, I, uh, the economic burden on the West by the possible at the time still possible reunification, and I was going back to the fear of German nationalism dating back to Otto von Bismarck and Bluten Eisen and then oh. right, wow. so, this guy actually knows his shit and we also had you know when it came well what's this mean to you what is punk rock to you what is this and we could talk about it and we had a good conversation um, Breakdown did an interview for Zap Magazine and they were like it wasn't Jeff who did it I don't remember who in the band did it because they had some interchangeable members so it's it was probably someone who wasn't in the band for long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the interview was basically, 
you know, they were asking questions. Hey, what what, what is your th- feeling about? Oh, who gives a shit? We just want to get laid. And, yeah. You know, what, what's your influence? Motley Crue, ZZ Top. Uh, like, really? Yeah. <laughs> when that was printed, it fucked up their tour. Yeah. <laughs> um, stuff like that. So, yeah, we did very well. And I remember we were playing in Leipzig in, uh, on that first tour. Uh, great venue. We also had a... It's kind of funny. We had a... Our opening band was this band from Leipzig called DMB. And uh, we found out later their their tour manager, the wall... The reunification was recent. East German government had fallen apart. Right. I don't know. Your phone's doing something over there. I figure I'd bring it to your attention. I don't know what it is. The unification. Our, our, uh, it was found out later, the guy on the opening band, the manager of the opening band who was with us for the entire tour, was an intelligence officer with Stasi, the East German secret police. Okay. Um, <laughs> but bear in mind, there were billions of files in East Germany, and everyone, it was like uh, every fifth person was reporting for Stasi, and you had... But this guy was, like, higher on up. And it caused a problem for that band. Uh, they had a hard time uh, getting booking after that when it came out. But I thought it was kind of cool that he was on the road with us. Uh, but in Leipzig, Mark Nickel from MAD came up to us. And he said, Brandon! And I said, hey, Mark. I knew he, he and his girlfriend at the time, uh, Uta, Uta Fuskin, they had been living in New York a couple of years earlier. I got to know him. And uh, he was like, you always said to me, you come with SFA to Europe, uh, you let me book you. He said, I'm sorry, I, I forgot. I didn't even remember. Yeah. Um, and he said, uh, you must promise to let me book your next tour. He said, okay. Our next European tour, we actually had two. Hmm. Uh, that one with him, uh, that was supposed to be our first. One in the spring, uh, two weeks before the tour, our bass player broke his hand. And I had to call him up. I said, we've got to cancel the tour. <laughs> You're joking, right? And I said, no, no, we got to cancel the tour. And we did. And he was very upset. He said, no, no, we, we have somebody who could learn your songs. He's like, no. No, no, no. I, 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 I don't want to play with somebody right. just learning our songs. I want us to play. Right. Um, huh. And uh, so we wound up doing a tour in the fall of 94 with him with our opening band was this band Rikers. In fact, that's a poster okay. from when we played the SO36 in Berlin with them. Okay. And uh, nice bunch of guys. But, but let me preface, and here's, here's an important story. Mark flew into New York in 93 or 92. He, he was doing other stuff, but he also wanted to meet with us and pitch us for doing an SFA tour. And we say, okay, we were still wanting to work with Stefan Rose again, 
And he said, no, no, meet me. And of course, so we were in a bar. We have a couple pitchers of beer and Mark joins us. We're all drunk. And he makes his pitch. And he's starting to talk about money. And we're kind of, our eyes are glazing over. And he says, how much money did you make on the last tour? And we tell him, you know, our guarantee for weekdays was this and our guarantee for weekends was that. And it was like the equivalent of like, you know, whatever. A few hundred bucks a night on the weekdays and like 800 bucks a night or a thousand bucks a night on the weekend. Right. In, in translated to U.S. dollars. Which for us was more than we'd ever seen. Sure. Um, and he said, okay, let's do some math. And he pointed and he said, what was your biggest show? And thought about it and we said Hanover. Okay. We played a, we played a youth, youth center in Hanover and it was amazing, this big brick building, big 18-wheeler truck comes, loads out our back line, you know, full gear, lighting rig installed, you know, and they paid us whatever. He said something like, we, we got made the equivalent of like, in U.S. dollars, we probably made $1,800 that night. And <laughs> we also had no merchandising on that tour ah. because uh, our bass player who was supposed to print up the shirts forgot to. Oh, boy. He also, a funny thing about that, we had a U.K. leg of that tour <laughs> that we had to cancel uh-huh. because uh, the bass player forgot to take off of work. So we had to call our promoter and say, we can't do the UK tour, which included in 1991, we were going to do the John Peel show, a radio show, and we were going to do a Peel session. I don't know if you know what that is. I kind of do. We were going to do a Peel session. <laughs> Even if they didn't release it, we were going to do a Peel session and we would have released it ourselves. SFA, the Peel sessions. Awesome. If you look up later on Amazon or anything, the Peel Sessions, famous punk artists throughout the years did Peel Sessions. Right. We had an opportunity to do one. We couldn't do it because our bass player forgot to take off of work. Oh, my In fucking part, God. It's like, what, when does the incompetence <laughs> wait, end? It's partly my fault. Were you his boss? No, but All right. I'm, a, I'm a bit of a dick. <laughs> and I like fucking with people sometimes. And, like, April Fool's jokes, like... I told them we were playing the Beacon Theater with Iggy Pop. They nice. get all excited. They tell everyone, like, fuck you, I'm kidding. Right. You know, I would do shit. He didn't believe we were going to Europe. He was convinced until we were on the fucking plane. So you were the catalyst that started this shit. <laughs> yes. So you can't be mad at the guy. I can't. <laughs> we were on the fucking plane, and he still had doubts. <laughs> oh, my God. Which is also why he didn't make up any European tour. Right. <laughs> so... We did our first tour with no merchandise. Um, <laughs> Unreal. You guys would have made money hand over fist. Like yeah, crazy. I know. And uh, Is there any merch anywhere around? Any SFA shirts ever? Yeah, sure. You do you? Yeah, we, we made tons of shirts. No, I'm saying now. You mean currently made? Yeah. No. You have, is there any SFA shirts now? That I have not sold on eBay? Yes. Maybe a couple here or there. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I was talking to Ratbones the other day. He has an SFA jacket. I was very jealous. I wanted to run out of his Was house. it one of the embroidered ones? Yes. <laughs> yes. I wanted it. So well, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I had 50 of those made up. They were stolen from the trunk of my car. Unreal. 
than anyone who's going to use them. Um, the, this is a good story here. Mark Nickel did the breakdown with us. Mark Nickel from MAD. And this is a story I tell to everyone involved in the scene later in your later years. Everyone in a touring band. He explained that because they were subsidized by the government, I said, hey man, they put us up in a hotel. We got the equivalent of $1,800 U.S. And he said, okay, how many people were at that show? Conservatives. I said, well, that was big. That was, like, I'd say, 600 people being conservative. He said, okay, how much did they pay? Well, the door price was low. He said, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. And we went over it, and he said, okay. He said, okay. There was, at the, when all was said and done, there were about $3,000 uh, or more. They're subsidized by the government. Your backline, your the the salaries of the people there, all paid for by the government as they subsidize the arts, especially at these youth centers. Which is why, if you talk to other bands, they talk about Europe and especially Germany. They'll talk a lot about youth centers, and a lot of people play youth centers because they're subsidized, right? Uh, and their expenses are covered. And he said, you got paid close to $1,800. Even your hotel was covered. $3,000 came in at the door. He said, being conservative with the numbers. Where'd the other $1,200 go? Hmm. And he said, think about it for a second. The promoter, the booking agent, they have a right to make some money, Sure. But that's a lot. They took nearly half the money. And he said something that stuck with me. He said, hardcore bands need to stop feeling guilty about making money. Those were his exact words. And it stuck with me. He said, you don't have to ask for high door prices. You don't have to ask for high guarantees. But if there's money to be made at these shows, you deserve to be paid fairly. Absolutely. And that's why we went with MAD. And it was the whole way. It was, you know, they were on top of things. And on the next tour... It was beautiful. Oh, oh my God. Well, the money was great, but it was also the way things ran smoothly. And it was like, you know, you go on tour and you're living like a king. I remember like the SO36 over here in Berlin. We we, we go to the SO36 uh, and there's a big spread platter in the back, you know, boxes of candy and cookies and tons of bread and cold cut platters and, you know, juices and fruits and all kinds of shit. And we're gorging ourselves and making sandwiches and from previous tour experience wrapping sandwiches up and hiding in our bags for tomorrow. <laughs> of course. That kind of shit. Yeah. And uh, while we're all there, oh, stuffed, you know, promoter comes in and says, dinner's in half an hour. Like, what? What the fuck? Yeah, this, <laughs> is, know, this is nice. This is, oh, I, we could get used to this. Yeah. Oh, and like open up the fridge full of beer and like, oh, don't worry, when that runs out, we'll put more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking, it's a free-for-all over here. It's beautiful, man. Oh, that tour was nice, and we got to go to some places in Eastern Europe. But uh, one of the lessons learned, like we were on the road with this band Rikers from Germany. Yeah. Great guys. Still playing. Hey, 
Oh, I know, yeah. I know. Uh, Chris, love you. You know I do. Du bist mein alter Freund. But uh, they, they, uh, their style was not our style. No. Um, as people, they were great. As music, I could enjoy it. But we didn't belong together on that tour. And it, it kind of hurt us a little. Right. It'd be like if... Uh, shit, I don't know. It'd be like if an old punk band like Social Distortion had Madball opening for them. Right. It was not the two same crowds. Right. And we, we had people coming to us... Um, like, because we had friends in Europe now, you know, we, we'd, we'd, we'd be setting up at a club, and some people would pull up, hey, fuck, I remember you guys, you know, yeah. last year, blah, blah, blah. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, we just wanted to come by, say hello. Hey, do you have anything to sell? You know, whatever, like chatting bullshit. Hey, you guys coming tonight? I'll put you on the list. You guys were awesome last year. No, we're not coming tonight because Rikers is playing. Uh. And, well, you got a problem with the band? No, we don't have a problem with the band. We have a problem with their crowd. Right. And it's a crowd that's very common now. It's, you know, it's the uh, basketball jersey hoodlums, you know, swinging their fists and kickboxing. Yeah. It's not the old punks getting drunk. Right. And uh, they were great guys. We had a lot of fun with them. And there were times where, you know, it just wasn't our audience because, you know, we we didn't have the beat down breakdown parts or whatever, right. um, but these were uh, uh, all of them. All of them love those guys, especially Chris. Yeah, great guys. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm still friends with them to this day, and uh, I hope I haven't said anything to offend them because I certainly don't mean to. Nicest guys, which is why the next tour that we did. We wanted to bring a band with us. And uh, we decided to bring Cause for Alarm. Oh, yeah, the other band that Vinny Stigma thinks you're in. Right. <laughs> uh, no, it's the only band he thinks you're yeah, in. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, for Cause for Alarm, this time it was, it was going to be a whole different story. It was going to be, a, we thought, this is great. I love these guys musically. Uh, Gotten to know them. We played uh, since they since they got back together because uh, they had they had broken up. Yeah. Uh, uh, in around eighty four, eighty five. Then they got back together briefly in eighty nine. I know Keith doesn't like to call, talk about that reunion. And then they got back together in ninety five, and we played a few shows together, and we got along great. And we decided this would be great for everyone. Uh, we were big in Europe and as well known as they are now in Europe at the time they weren't it was, it was like it was in New York we were opening for them in Europe they were opening for us um, so it was also the, the idea of the scumbags at their record label Victory Records who I have many unkind words for uh, yeah, there's a lot now there's I never really heard anything really too positive about that. You're them. never going to hear anything more negative than what I will say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please remind me to bring that shit up because okay. I have no problem naming names. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Victory thought, okay, cause for alarm and SFA are a good sound mesh, and they knew uh, to promote cause for alarm in Europe. If you're in a band that's serious about touring all the time, this was a good deal. Open for SFA, play to their crowd, and then six months later come back, and all those people are going to be your crowd now, right. plus whoever else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just common. That's why that's why you open. Yeah. Um, and the deal was good for them. Um, they had no expenses. They also didn't make any money on the shows. They got covered with a per diem from the total net of the door of the of the of the shows, and they got um, everything they made off merchandise was theirs, but they also had no expenses. Um, from the very first show and the very first shirt they sold, they were in pure profit. Right. Um, so it was an investment on their end, and it was investment on our end, which was. We're going to have an opening band, no matter what. Let's have an opening band that fits. Sure. Let's have an opening band that will make for a strong tour and won't have people saying, I'd love to stay and watch you, but I don't want to see that crowd. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Because, and this is not a knock against MAD or any other promoter, their job, in addition to promoting us as their headlining tour is to cultivate whatever band they're trying to build and blow up. Right. Sure. Now, that could be at our expense. Why take a chance? Um, so what that meant was we incurred the costs, and I discussed this before, some yes. of the problems. We incurred the costs of vehicle rentals for two bands, airline tickets for two bands, and then the per diems for two bands. So... We had to get there. Um, it was a great tour. It was a. We did a. They were only with us for a third of the tour. This was a ridiculously long tour. Uh, we left the end of March and we didn't come back until like first week of July. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah <laughs> wait, that's wait, a long tour. Imagine. Yeah, like end of June, early July. Okay. Because it was broken down into three into a few sections. We were doing. Western Europe with Cause for Alarm. As our opener. It was a little less. No, no. We let, we came back the end of June. But it was a three-month tour. Right. Um, which for Europe is a lot. But it was actually kind of two and a half tours. What we had done was we had done Western Europe with Cause for Alarm. And that's a lot. That's a full month. And then we did... Um, we did uh, Eastern Europe on our own plus locals and then we did the UK for real and we got fucked over in the UK too not by MAD by the UK promoter right in a really big way um we got to the UK we were supposed to be meeting three other local bands and the four of us were going to be touring together we were the only one we were getting to and our our our, the, the UK promoter did not answer his phone he hid from us. We were getting to clubs, and the clubs would say to us, where are the other bands? Yeah. And we'd wind up being the only band. Fuck. And more than that, 
because the local band, the local UK bands had cancelled their parts of the tour, mm-hmm. people, the local kids, assumed the shows were cancelled. Uh-huh. So we were, like, we played, you know, we play a big place in freaking Liverpool and, like, a giant venue in front of 15 fucking people. Ah, fuck. And unfortunately, the clubs ate it because they had guarantees they had to pay. Right. We still made our money, which was... I never felt more guilty. Right. We actually had days off. We wound up booking shows in London on our own that did well. Much better on like five days notice right. because the word got out, people handing out flyers at record stores. Yeah. And there were a couple shows where the word got out, hey, yeah, yeah, they are here. Right. Because people thought that the whole tour, there was no SFA coming. Right. We all, I also have... What's probably my... Uh, it's a funny story. We got uh, the local... We picked up an issue of Kerrang! The metal magazine. Sure. And they did a review of our new album. Which album was this at the time? This was Solace. Solace, okay. Which is also a big fuck you to Victory Records for this. Um, but we had... We opened up the review in, in, in Kerrang! And it made no sense. And we were staying with this guy who ran a record store, and he showed us a fax. It's the 90s. And uh, (laughs) he said, the guy who wrote this review wanted you to see it before his editor got a hold of it. This was the original review. And it was a very lovely review, a couple paragraphs long. Um, This band has been around forever, blah, blah, blah. They've been playing the same style. They're, They're a little innovative with this new album, Cleaner Production. But they haven't lost the anger, and but, 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 it was a very nice review. Right. And there, there's the review, and then there's their K rating system, like five Ks. Yeah. We had four Ks, and this nice review, which was this band. We've been SFA's been around forever, and even though they progressed and they've introduced some new stuff, they're still true to their roots and haven't changed. And blah 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 blah. It was a nice review. Right. What the editor, who pre- clearly had a sense of humor, and because we weren't on a major label. He gave us a blurb of a size review. He took that review and condensed it to, this band has been around forever and hasn't learned a thing. Oh, Jesus (laughs) Christ. So we're looking at this review like, what? (laughs) It's got four Ks. It just, they had to explain. Yeah. Well, those weren't the worst. Over the years, like the the big zines in America, flip side... Always gave us great reviews. Oh, these guys are fucking awesome, blah, blah, blah. Love Flipside. Maximum Rock and Roll, wow, I don't know what pretentious fuck was writing our reviews. But I would read a review from MRR, and I'd, I'd call the band around, like, look at this shit. Yeah. And we'd all read it. We'd read it out loud several times, look at each other and say, did they like it? Because yeah. it, it was. What did I just read? I read fucking freeform poetry. <laughs> There's no anti-human yet singing at cynical. But what? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, the greatest review we ever got from Maxim Rock and Roll. We got a full-page column review of a bootleg. Oh, that's always fucking and, and this nice. is a fuck you to Maxim Rock and Roll, by the way. Besides your fake interviews, was a. Uh, the bootleg wasn't just a rave review. This is the greatest thing ever. It was one of the 1986 or 1987 demos. Somebody put it on vinyl. But 
it was, the review was also ignore all the shit this band has ever released. Oh my fuck god! Fuck all of it. This is pure genius. What? What the fuck is this? We found out it was someone who worked at Maximum Rock and Roll who put out the bootleg. Unfucking believable. <laughs> Unfucking real. People are such fucking scumbags, man. But I, I gotta say that. So, and also that '96 tour. Then after now we're two months into the tour of UK, and then the last leg of the tour, which for me was a punk rock dream or, or nightmare, depending on how it went, was we were touring with the Anti Nowhere League. Okay, and that was nerve wracking, simply because I love the Anti Nowhere League. They were same here. Like you're not supposed to as a, as a hardcore punk kid, you're not supposed to idolize certain musicians. Right. It's we're supposed to all be on an equal bearing. But there were some I couldn't help. Yeah. But and especially listen, when you're there, I, I not see him. Yeah. And the Anti-Nowhere League were my fucking heroes. Like, there's some songs, We Are the League, the lyrics are just pure genius. Yeah. yeah. About, I wish I wrote a song about how my band sucks and, and fuck you, come pay me to watch me. Yeah. You know, that's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh my God, these guys, these guys could be... If these guys are dicks, I'm gonna. My life is gonna be over. But they weren't. They were the coolest guys. We wound up uh, in the first night together. We had a night off, so we were in Hereford, not Hereford, England. Hereford in southern Germany, and uh, we were in a whorehouse in Hereford. Uh, and we just got drunk under the table and had a good time just laughing and shooting the shit mm-hmm. at this bar in this whorehouse in Hereford. <laughs> and that's all we did there. Nice. But we also, we just, it was just... These guys were amazing, and these guys were my heroes, and they just turned out to be the nicest guys. And there was a time, when you're on tour together, you... you even if you didn't know the band beforehand, you get to know them. Yeah. And they had some wild stories... For me, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I was like a kid, you know, my eyes wide open. Yeah? Tell me more, Grandpa. It was brilliant. And uh, at the end of the tour, uh, by the end of the tour, our last shows together, and then we had festival dates at the end of that, but then that covered the three months. But we had, uh, you know, I'm singing on stage, if you want to call it singing, and I look over. And they're the guys from the Anti Nowhere League by the side of the stage, singing along. Wow! See, and that's... it was like the Anti Nowhere League is singing along to my song, my song that I high on coke and drunk wrote on a fucking bar napkin years ago uh-huh. that I've recorded, and I'm singing. My fucking heroes are singing this song. I, I, it was like, that's it. Yeah. It doesn't get better than this. If any involvement I ever had in punk, if this was the end of it. Right. If my story in punk was a movie, this would be the final scene. Yeah. You know, this was full circle. Everything. That's awesome. The angry young teenager screaming along to anti Nowhere League records in my bedroom. Yeah. And now, you know, the anti Nowhere League singing along to my shitty songs. That's fucking oh. great. Fuck yes. Yeah. 
Awesome. An important story about that tour is also Keith from Cause for Alarm. And don't cut this one off. It's important to hear the whole thing. Yes. We'll, we will wrap in a few, though. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. We, we have, before the glitch, we've been going for two hours and nine minutes. <laughs> Since the glitch. <laughs> uh, you scratched the surface, you buddy. We can do a part two, man. We can absolutely do another fucking two hours. Keith from Cause Leave people Alarm. hanging. We could do a part two. You want to do a part two eventually? Yeah. Good. We haven't even touched on anything that was happening at CB's. Right. Barely what was happening with the band. Um, so then we definitely have to do a part two. Keith, I, I want to tell this story because it's important. And it's good to know. Keith, on that tour, Keith from Cause for Alarm became an asshole. I mean, it, it got bad. He, he did not like us opening for him. Or, excuse me. Him opening for us. He didn't like it. He let it get to him. And because I'm a dick, I used it. Like, I would bring up his drummer on stage to sing along with us. And he hated his own drummer. In fact, they fired their drummer midway through the tour. Literally pulled up to a train station in the rain, threw his bags out. Might have even been the wrong train station. And just gave him his airline ticket and said, go. <laughs> um <laughs> That was a lesson in hate core. I was like, "Wow, Keith." Yeah, where, where, you know, because people. Wait, okay, uh, wait. Let me. Right. If I if I don't get this out, okay, go on. Keith, it got so bad that there were two vans on the road. SFA and and most of cause for alarm in our van, and Keith and a driver in the other van. Because Keith let it get to him. Keith was angry. But I love Keith, and he's one of the best people I know, and this is why. Eight months later, Keith comes into CBGB one day. And it's before opening, and he says, Hey, Brendan, can I talk to you? And we go sit at the bar. I'm like, Yeah, okay, Keith, I'm, I'm still a little pissed. And not asking for anything, not needing anything from me. Um, Keith said, listen, I've been doing a lot of introspective reflecting. Not like he was going through any program or anything. It was just, just, just him. He's a very spiritual person. And he said, I was an asshole. I let it get to me. I owe you an apology. And he wasn't trying to get anything from me. There were no favors, no get my friend on the list, book my band, nothing. Right. He just sought me out after all that time with nothing to gain, just to apologize. And I got to be honest, like if I was a dick, and I've been a dick to people, I don't know if I would have the balls to go out of my way, look for the person and humble myself and apologize, and he did right. with nothing to gain. And that says a lot about somebody. He character. has, and that's just him as a person learning and growing. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like I'm giving some motivational speech here or anything, but I was just so impressed about his by his character. Yeah. And truly great person, and I, I'm glad to call him a friend. 
Yeah. I'm honored and proud, and he's a good person, and he deserves nothing but the best. Because I would have never been that good, and he's a better man than me. So, salute, Keith. Salute, Keith. He was also... One of the nice things about having Cause for Lama on the road with us was they were on Victory Records, and since we never had a label that gave us tour support, Victory promoted the tour. Ah, okay. So we got we got tour support thanks to our opening band. They got go. promotion. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We were. Can I say a fuck you to Victory Records? Hey, go right ahead. You just said it. <laughs> but go on. Fuck elaborate. you. A real serious fuck you to Tony from Victory Records. Uh, we were signed for that album, for Solace. We had signed to, and we, we knew what we were getting into. We signed with a record label called We Bite uh, to do Solace. And they, they promised us a few things. They were going to send us money to go into the studio <clears throat> for, for Solace. And they did. Not enough. Right. And the follow-up checks never showed, but that's fine. Um, we recorded for them they sent us contracts and they pulled a fast one which we saw them doing Okay, like uh, they signed oh my god they also signed 25 to life um, <laughs> oh god but they signed um, there was We Bite Europe and We Bite America two separate labels right but really, they were the same label. They were only two separate labels on paper. Okay. Uh, they signed 25 to Life to We Buy Europe. Mm-hmm. With We Buy America being a foreign license. And they okay. signed SFA. SFA was signed to We Buy America with... We Buy Europe as a foreign license. Gotcha. Now, the reason for the foreign license is... When your record is put out by a foreign license, you get less money from it. Uh-huh. So, because they knew we were going to sell more records in Europe than in America, because that's who we were. We right. had no illusions. I didn't, I didn't pretend that we had big crowds, right. you know, clamoring to see us in the States. I, I'm a realist. I knew what they were doing. And I said, you fuckers. But, I, you know, this is what it was. Um... And it was, it was such bullshit. I, I had to... Um, we Bite America wasn't even a real label. It was one guy uh, with a cubicle in the, in the Victory Records office Ugh. who would answer the phone. And he also worked for Victory. Um, and I, would, I used to call him. I used to call him and like, hey, I got a problem with this, problem with that. It's like, don't ask me. Call the guys in Germany. Well, technically, you're our label. All right. And he's like, well, you know that it's bullshit, right? He's like, yeah, I know. Well, I'm going to make you all your lives difficult as long as you're making mine difficult. Right. Um, which is why 25 for Life was bigger in America than Europe. So they signed them to We Bite Europe to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, fuck with them. Yeah. Um, before the record came out, we had uh, a guitarist, Eric, who was a graphic artist. So for the first time, we actually had professional layout done. And we we had, okay, we were dealing with the printers in Germany, and we're like, okay, we're going to send you camera-ready, you know, photostat films ready to print. And we had gotten all the specs and the blueprints layout for, for doing albums for vinyl, CD, and cassette. 
what was called all three formats back then. All three formats. Um, <laughs> and uh, we sent to them, and they said, we can't do anything with this. I said, why not? Well, the guys in We Bought Europe, but well, what happened was half his staff was off on vacation. Uh-huh. And he said, well, we need a scan to print from. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? You yeah. need a scan. Yeah, we, we can't print from these giant film negatives. Yes, you can. Take them to wherever you get your records printed, and they would say, oh, great, this is what we need. No, 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 we need scans. I said, okay, listen. If you give high-definition scans to your pressing people, they take those scans and they make giant film negatives right. <laughs> and print from them. And it's like, no, you don't understand. We can't do that here. Like, the printing press was invented in Germany. You can <laughs> <Yeah>. fucking print this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... The last comment we got from him was like, listen, just take this down to your pressing people. And if they can't do it, if they tell you we don't know what these are. Oh, God. I promise you, we will spend hundreds of dollars on our end and create new scanned art and send it to you on floppy disk. Floppy, <laughs> on a floppy disk. Yes! Uh-huh. <laughs> so he tells us, no problem, it's done. We get to uh, Europe. I don't know if you have an actual copy of the album Solace. I do not. Well, there's a reason for that on several fronts. Okay. <laughs> They scanned the artwork. And bear in mind, I should mention, these were scanners from the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So our camera-ready, pristine... Not camera-ready, print-ready, giant photostat films. Perfect print. Were just indecipherable, blocky blurs. Right. It would be like, to put it in modern computer terms... If I gave you a a megapixel image, right, and you reduce the quality to a fifty kilobyte JPEG, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna be just it's fucking jack, just a bunch of blocky squares. Yeah, it's all pixelated, and all it's all up. pixelated and blurred. Yeah, you literally you could not even read it. Yeah, it's bad. They didn't even have what became the SFA logo. They didn't even have a copy of that. The only thing, they had a scan of it from the actual CD art, which had a hole in the center. Right. So that's what they used. With a hole in the center. Oh, my God. Because they didn't even bother on the the album art, on the outside, you know, the, the song titles, the... The produced, engineered, yeah. etc. Uh-huh. All that's blocky and blurry. You can't read it. You can't make anything out. But they did take the time to retype the lyric sheets. Right. Just with the wrong lyrics. Oh my god. <laughs> so we were unhappy. We had a confrontation. Won't get into all that. That's too long of a story. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, uh, they promised us They said, don't worry about it. 
Now, remember, we're on a three-month tour. Right. And they said, listen, what's going on back with We Bite America? I said, no. We fixed the problems. All future pressings will be fixed. All future pressings will have this issue taken care of. And I assure you right now, in the Chicago office for We Bite America, they've got this under control. So when you get back to America, all the stuff that's printed by We Bite America will be great. Right. (laughs) We also got violent and threatened to kill him and all that. So We Bite Records was also collapsing. We got back to America. There was no more rebite records. Somebody smarter than us had sued them, mm-hmm. and they folded. And uh, there were no records made in America. Right. Not a single one. There was one pressing in Europe, and that was it. Yeah, that's why I don't have it. And <laughs> there was in America. Zero copies, except for a few people who ordered from a couple of distributors that had it in Europe. Right. Um, I never got a cassette copy. I had some CDs. The vinyl, the print was okay, because they did that later. Right. In fact, I never caught a copy of the vinyl, except Rachel Rosen was kind enough... Oh, yeah, she was on tour with us that time. That's right. (laughs) Rachel from Indecision. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Rachel. (laughs) But anyway, on an Indecision tour, she was going through a record bin at a show, and she found a a couple of copies on vinyl, and she got one for me. So thank you for that, Rachel. I have one. Uh, I'll show it to you later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, Rachel was fun on that tour. That was a hard tour on Rachel. Rachel was young. Rachel was young, and we were not the people to be trapped in a van with. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. There was debauchery and whatnot, and uh, Rachel's not, uh, no, no. And she, this was also, as she said at the time, I mean, she's toured. She's a great musician, and she's a great person. Love her to death. Uh, but she was not prepared for this also because, um, as she said to us, when, first of all, when you're on the road, because you're constantly in a different city and meeting new people every day, five days feels like five weeks. Sure. So three months of different cities, different places, different people feels like forever. Yeah. This was Rachel's first time away from home. Okay. This was her first time traveling without her family. Yeah. So she was very, very Culture homesick. shocked. It's all fucked. Yeah. She was very, very fall. homesick from and the get-go. Yeah. yeah. And then she's yeah. on the road where you were fucking animal sacrifice. Oh, yeah. She was, that was not, no. Right. So that's not helping matters. In fact, well, there was a great moment. There was a... We played... Uh, we were supposed to play two shows in London. Uh, one at the Underworld with uh, Voorhees and uh, Stampin' Ground. And uh, open, and, and then we had booked a second show at the Albion in Croydon, London. This great old punk pub, big place, huge crowd, and there was already a punk show going on there. We were going to jump on. Uh, Coitus was playing, and some other, Coitus and Feeder, I think, were playing, and uh, we were going to jump on. 
But then a riot broke out, which was kind of funny because, uh, ironically, Rachel had turned to me and she said, I kept hearing all these stories about, you know, fights and stuff on previous tours. When are we going to have that? And then a riot broke out and, like, you know, straight out of the movies, all the bobbies came with, you know, uh-huh. their helmets and their trunch and swinging, right, you know, just... <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as we're loading stuff in the van and trying to get the hell out of there, I said, Rachel, Rachel, where are you going? This is it. This is what you were asking for. That's it. <laughs> nice. As the bottles were flying. That was awesome. Good shit. <laughs> we all... Oh, my God. I have one, qu- I have one question for oh, you. okay. To cut me off. Actually, I'm not cutting you off because, actually, technically, we already, we already broke a record. It's the longest episode that I've done Dude, so far. Dude, this is nothing. This I is know. Nothing. But this is going to be part one, okay? Because I, I, I have to go in a little bit. But this will be part one, and like you said, you're already fucking recorded saying that we'll do a part two, and we'll, we'll, we'll go again for as long as you want, and we'll talk if you want to, you know, hone in on... CVs or whatever you want. That's fine with me. Okay? We'll just have to... We'll make it We'll make it happen as soon as we possibly can make it happen. Doesn't matter to me. Sure. Right. Gotta ask me about the riot story from the first tour. Okay. Well, all right. that, that will happen. Oh, all my God. Stuff. But I want to know because some people nowadays, whatever, some people will see the flyer that I put out for when this was available now and... Obviously, yes, there's a lot of people that I'm friends with and who listen to the podcast that know SFA. Where did the, the whole quote-unquote moniker of New York City hate core come from? Easy. Talk to me. When I got out of the service, um, I hated what had been happening to New York hardcore. Um, I hated that. Um, this is this is important. There's not a short answer. I'm sorry to say. Uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to rush you. I'm just saying that I do have to go in a little bit. <laughs> right. When I when I came out of the when I came out of the service, I uh, man. When I got out of the service, I came back to a New York hardcore that was very different than the New York hardcore that I left. It was the age of the youth crew, shall yes. we say. Where suddenly it was all a bunch of, you know, clean-cut kids and nice, expensive sportswear running around. Uh, kids talking about unity while only going to see bands that also talked about unity. Um, it was... <laughs> yep. Uh, suddenly, people thought hardcore and punk were two different scenes when they were always the same beforehand. And... There was a move to co-opt it as this clean-cut, positive, hopeful thing where hardcore had one definition that suited one click. Um, and uh, that wasn't what I was a part of. That wasn't, you know... Hardcore was about, for me, again, for me, about not fitting in. It wasn't about... Let's fucking hold hands and bake cookies and, you know, go fucking do the church charity drive. It was, you know, I hate myself. I hate the world. I hate my reason for being here. I hate the air I breathe. You know, it was was anger and angst and despair and just screaming out into the fucking night against everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know fucking playing like you're we're on fu- fucking fire and pouring your fucking guts out on the stage yeah. um 
as far as the music went. And this whole happy hold hands thing, it wasn't for me. And I wanted to distinguish. Yeah. I wanted to separate myself from that and hate core. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, like, bring it back. Yeah, bring it back. <laughs> um, and it's funny, of course, because that term that I coined kind of got co-opted years later with a different meaning. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> which also made it hard. I can't really say hate core as much when we go flyer now because uh, we're going to draw a different kind of crowd. Right. But uh, yeah, it was always about that. Yeah. It was always about that anger. Um, God damn. Which is uh, funny speaking. Uh, for the tour we were going to do after Cause for Alarm in Europe, uh, we were going to bring the Nihilistics with us. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, uh, that would be interesting. That would have been a good one. That <laughs> would have been a good one. We also got offered, it's funny, uh, I was talking about uh, doing merch. Right. Uh, uh, not, not doing merch, but how, you know, Cause for Alarm as an opening band, they came with us and they made their money off their merch. Right. We got offered the same thing. Uh, Mark came to us and said, hey, uh, because I was also tour managing the tour, including tour managing for anti Nowhere League, uh, he wants to bring me back to tour manage for some other. And he also said, I want to bring SFA back in however many months to do the tour opening for the Misfits. But it would have been the same kind of deal. Whereas, you know, as much as we were playing, you know, whatever, Irving Plaza and Ritz sized places in Europe, the Misfits were playing fucking small stadiums. Yeah. So we're like, this sounds interesting. And, uh, but your expenses would be covered, but you'd only make your money from your merch. Listen, the reason we stopped touring the States and only kept with Europe was because we were all adults. I had kids. You had people with serious jobs. You couldn't take off of... We didn't. We weren't looking to be rich and nice, but it was never going to happen. Right. We were looking to not lose money. We were looking to yeah, that would come be nice. home, come home, and be able to pay the bills for all the time we were gone, right. and still have a little money left over. Right. Selling merch next to the Misfits merch was never going to do that. <laughs> no. It was like. I was like, oh, this is a great deal. We could, you know, we'll play in front of 10,000 people every night opening for the Misfits in Europe. And we'll make our money from our merch. I was like, no, we're not. No. They have their fucking mini mall superstore oh, they open up with fucking action figures and mugs and all kinds. Of, we got nothing. Right. We're not going to move a single shirt. We got three different <laughs> t shirts. That's it. Well, actually, we had it. We learned on our last tour hoodies, windbreakers. Hoodies, windbreakers, eight different t-shirt designs, long sleeves as well. Um, you fuckers had frisbees. Hockey jerseys, frisbees. Frisbees. I wanted that Fuck to it. be frisbee. In fact, hard. it's funny. The frisbees, <laughs> the frisbees we had made here, and we shipped them ahead of time, you know, slow boat shipping to save money, uh, to our booking agency in Berlin. And I got a phone call. Uh, Mark Nickel in Berlin. 
Uh, we opened this big box. What the fuck is this? <laughs> um, they don't know about frisbees over there. And it's frisbees. No, they know frisbees. Yeah. But he didn't think we were going to sell them. Right. We had a bunch here in the states, but we had we had a shit ton of them in Europe. We had giant boxes filled with frisbees. And I remember four weeks in, we're sold out, Mark. How That's about that? Awesome. Oh, Mark. Mark is a great guy, and I, I love Mark. And and I don't know if you've ever met him. He's big, burly guy, and especially in the '80s, intimidating, like six and a half feet tall, mountain man, and had some great stories about the early days of the Berlin punk scene. Hmm. And but uh, he also spoke in very simple terms mm-hmm. because of his English. I mean, Jesus, his English was a million times better than my German. Right. Uh, but. He, because he was this big, brooding man who spoke very simple. Um, he sounded like Conan a lot. And so, like, I talk, yeah, I'm, I'm having a new kid. Ah, yes. Many people I know, they find new woman, they make new baby. You know, <laughs> yeah. he was like talking with Conan. I love yeah. you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> and he said something that I found inspiring. Now, we have an album that was never released. Story for part two. Yes. But the part that I want to tell now is the name of the album, where it came from. Um, it was came from the Misfits pitch. Um, I said to him, when he offered us the Misfits deal, it wasn't with Glenn Danzig. It was that uh, that kid. I forget his name. It'll come to me. Michael it'll, Graves. It'll Thank you. You're welcome. Graves. Now it I can speak, have, without, now I can speak without stuttering. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I know some things. <laughs> and I said to him, when he first offered it to me, I said, come on, man. Who wants to see, the, you know, this Misfits without without, without Danzig? Yeah. And he said, you don't understand. Everyone goes and it's just... And be, bearing in mind that, you know, Mark was an old school, early days of the punk scene, Berlin, big brooding scrapper you know, fighting the cops and whatnot, and to hear him, the words that came out in that big, boisterous, barrel-chested Conan voice when he said, Ah, but to sing along to the war songs of my youth. And I got it. That made so much sense to me. The war songs of my youth, to sing along to the war songs of my youth. Such a Conan thing to say. But I get it. Those songs from when you were a teenager, like, raging against the world. Yep. So, our unreleased album is titled War Songs. Okay. And it's got nothing to do about war. It was about that. what Mark Nichols said to me that day standing outside of a show in Germany. Nice. So, you know what we'll do? Because before we recorded, before we even press record at all today, I asked you if you'd want to put an SFA song at the end of this episode. Now, this is my idea. If you want to change it up, it doesn't matter. I got no problem with it. I have... At the end of part two... We'll put the unreleased track because so people will come back to fucking listen. But at the end of this one, we pick a song, whatever song you want to end with at the end of this one, we could put. So you could tell a whole little story on part two, and then we could end with the, with the unreleased record, and then we go into an unreleased song. But this one, pick an SFA song, and, oh, you're killing close, me. and close us out with it. Oh, you're killing me. There's a couple that come to mind. First of all, I will tell you right now, not 
gyroscope. I had a feeling. <laughs> I had a feeling you. And it's one of those that. things that gets me. It's one of those things that gets me for for a couple of reasons, because. I, I always, love that fucking song, though, dude. This is why. No! This what is the why. Fuck? You can't hate on the people who like your shit. Of all the songs we continued playing, I wrote every single song except Gyroscope. Really? I didn't even know that. All right, so how about, remember that little thing? By the way, my friend Jeff Gavin, who commented and then posted the On and On song. Mm-hmm. He's a singer for a great fucking Philly punk rock band called Dundeal. He's an older dude, and he, they get it. So you should check out fucking Dundeal. From I'll Philly. check out Dundeal. Dundeal. Am fun. I publicly endorsing them now? No, you're not. Hey, kids. Hey, kids. <laughs> hey, kids. I publicly endorse them all the time. But Dundeal from Philly's fucking, they rule. How about that song? That's a possibility. In which case, let me give a proper introduction. Uh... Okay, well, it depends on which version you do. It's up to you. We'll speak Well, first of all, with Gyroscope, I got to say, so many people, oh, I love that song. That's my favorite song. It's like, yeah. Yeah, thanks a fucking lot. <laughs> Even my wife, before she separates, she's like, that's my favorite song. Of course it is. Uh-huh. The one I didn't write. That's SFA's <laughs> fucking cherry pie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it is? It's, uh, as we, uh, when I took over SFA in 1988, we phased out all of Mike's songs. Except that one. Right. And even some songs, we just cannibalized them. We uh, kept the music, changed lyrics. Or, for example, he wrote a song called Spite, which we kept. And the lyrics were about a guy who lived through violence and how that was wrong. I changed the lyrics to be from a first-person point of view about living through violence and how right it felt. Right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which is a nice way of really explaining the contrast between me and Mike. <laughs> okay. Um, but Gyroscope was his lyrics, and Jan, our guitarist, it was his, his music. And uh, that was the only one we kept unchanged. Right. Um, on and On was me and... Our guitarist, John Ogg, um, <laughs> great guy, million stories, um, drunk one night at my job. Um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, he wrote the music, I wrote the lyrics, with a slight nod to Stefan from the False Prophets. People might spot it. If you know, you know. Um, and... Uh, we recorded it on our second out al- second album. Our second album was a, a full disaster. So what? Hmm. We recorded it in a rush. We really only recorded. It's a funny story. We only recorded five songs. Right. And then uh, Records Records said, "Hey, we're interested in putting you guys out." It's like, oh, okay. We only need to go back into the studio and do a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um. They didn't bother. Li- they heard the five songs. But they never bothered to count or to time it. Uh, so we kind of got over a little because then we went in and quickly wrote and recorded seven more songs. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Quick fits. But uh, we, uh, one of them rushed through was On and On, and it was garbage. We were drunk in the studio. It's a great song. And the, but the first time we recorded it, it right. was shit recording. 
And I was really furious about it because I was like, hey, this is actually a decent song. Um, and people were fucking around with the backups. Uh, parts that were supposed to be four times were only three times. All kinds of shit. And it just sounded like crap. So when we went back into the studio uh, a couple years later and did Solace, I said, guys, on this album, we are re-recording on and on. Right. Hopefully that's the version you've heard. Yes. And, uh, that was the version. I've heard both, but the one that was most yeah, is... <laughs> yes. And why are we redoing this song? I said, because it's a good song and people like it. In fact, Eric, who's our guitarist, who is new, I said, trust me, mm-hmm. watch. And it begins with a guitar intro. Mm-hmm. And we were our first show in Germany on his first tour with us. We, you know, we... We always believed, and I was always, I was very strong about not taking breaks between songs. Like doing six songs yep. melted together yep. with maybe a 30-second pause and then keep going. Yep. Just maintain the momentum. And as one song ended, and then that guitar intro began for On and On, and the crowd just went nuts. I just turned my back to the crowd and looked at Eric and said, mouthed the words so he gets me because yeah. he couldn't hear me. I fucking told you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in fact, it's so unlike all the other songs we do that I've had people say to me, "Yeah, oh, who did that originally? Who are you guys covering?" Like no one. Right. That's uh, John wrote the music. I wrote the lyrics. Yeah. They're like no, 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 really, Brendan. Like not for real. No one really. <laughs> yeah. It's not a cover. That was shit. <laughs> it's not a cover. Um, so I was glad to re-record that and and do it. Um, so what are you picking? What are you picking? So you're t- you're telling me I gotta pick that one. So I'm, I'm doing not telling you to do a damn thing. Oh Jesus! There are songs on Solace that I really like. I mean, that's the one thing. It's like with the, with So What. There were so many songs. It's just like, oh my God, this is awful. Uh, but ah, uh, oh, Jesus Christ! It's your episode, your band, your music, your call. Uh, I don't know. There are some songs I'm partial to. I'm partial to I Don't Need You on uh, Solace. Um, I just like it because it's the first time. It's the first time I actually tried to get like slightly melodic. I can't sing for shit. I can't carry a note. And I don't pretend to. Like I said earlier in the part that may have been deleted, I can't carry a note. Uh... Like my daughter sings, she has a beautiful voice, and she tries to sing me the difference between an A flat and a B minor. I don't know what she's doing; it's all the same to me. <laughs> right. Um, and just keeping in time is hard enough as it is. Um, and it's something in war songs. I tried to throw a couple more harmonies in there, and it worked a little. Uh, but I think uh, I don't need you is the in- interesting, just because I actually it's the first song we did that I actually tried to throw a little harmony in. Okay. And it's like, hey, let's actually harmonize a chorus. Yeah. We'd never done it before. Um, so from a purely musical point of view, that might be an interesting one to go to. Or, because I spent so much time talking shit about On and On, that might also be one to go to. Also, <laughs> On and On, we played Eastern Europe in 96. That song was released on a couple of European oi comps. All right. So we had some wild fucking turnouts. I think we're going to go with on and on. <clears throat> we played in Wodes. 
we played like 500 skins in Wodes, Poland. And it was like, this is fucking amazing. We all know what's on the waiting for, right? right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> awesome. Good shit. But, uh, yeah, so. On and on off of the Solace record. On and on off of the Solace record or I Don't Need You. Okay. Surprise me. Okay. And we will reconvene for part two. Oh, yeah. We will. I got stories about riots, about fights. We, uh, wa- we about want that stuff. Brendan? Disappointed in the, my idols. I haven't even got to talk shit about people yet. Right. Well, that's going to be part two. And <laughs> I got a lot of people to talk shit about. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk shit and you make listen people to angry. Oh, oh, boy. <laughs> awesome. Brendan, my man. Thank you, brother. A pleasure, sir. Yeah, and we will do part two. Bro, this is two hours and 45 minutes. Sorry. No, don't apologize. What the fuck are you sorry for? All right. So Does uh, that include the other seven minutes? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. No, that doesn't include the other the other seven minutes or so. So, yeah. So, all right, we're going to close out on and on off the Solace record. Is it, can you get fucking any SFA shit off of iTunes? Yeah. No. If you can, I don't know about it. It's got to be available somewhere. Uh, Search SFA NYHC and fucking get, get music. Well, I also know that uh, Go-Kart Records was going to re-release uh, our catalog that had gone, uh, our first two albums. Um, that fell apart because of what I told you before we recorded. Right. Um, but one of the things, I, I had been in communication with one of the guys from Go-Kart. He was in the middle of moving to California, I think it was. But it was about getting permission to release our stuff on iTunes. Okay. Uh, but, uh, I transferred <laughs> my stuff into my thing digitally from CDs. So. And before you run, I will uh, see if I can dig up something for you here. Awesome. <laughs> I appreciate that. Brendan, it's been fun. With a little glitch in the beginning. Fuck, that sucked. But uh, until part two. Part two, at least. Respect, my man. <laughs>